Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass. You can find it at theoryofdfs.com. Join with me is a special guest who on YouTube you cannot see on the screen, but you'll hear in the audio, it's quote-unquote Dean, uh, who runs the site sports-projections.com. Also, you could follow him at sports underscore underscore P-R-O-J, who I know a lot of people follow, and I know a lot of people use your site because it's a little bit easier than me using Excel for some showdown analysis. Uh, Dean, quote-unquote, the first question I have to ask before we talk about the site and everything that you do is uh, why are you so hesitant on, like, like I don't want to show my face, I don't want to show my real name, Uh I mean, I know there are some people in the DFS space that prefer to remain anonymous. Is it more because of that? Or, I mean, some people just don't like putting stuff out in social media and just like, like, nope, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather my Google results be uh, clean. Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of different things. Um, I am. The, the only social media I have is is this Twitter account um, that's you know not actually associated with with who I am. So I think and I am a pretty private person. Um, I think another big aspect is I do have uh, you know a full time job and I don't I don't do DFS professionally or or um, any of that. So so want to keep that as separate as as possible. Um, and and I think that the third reason is also um, yeah I just my my uh i've been playing dfs for uh quite quite some time i'm in my my mid 20s but i've been playing for a good bit of time and uh have a username that that's associated with my my actual name so i'm uh, just trying to keep that all as separate as as possible and and stay sort of under the radar so is it is it is it, is it a username that if if you were to say it people would recognize um, probably not. I, so I, I play, um, I primarily focus on, on some of the smaller sports, honestly. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't pretend to be, you know, like one of the, the whales or, or mega sharks. Um, I primarily play DFS, um, you know, and focus on, on some of the smaller sports or even smaller contest type offerings is really what I, what I play and focus on rather than, you know, just MMEing week in, week out for, for some of the major sports. So what, what are the smaller sports are you talking about? Are you talking about more the since, especially, I mean, well, the sports-projections.com, most people ask, ask me, cause like, oh, how do you check your dupes in like an MMA contest or a showdown contest? And, uh, you can do an Excel. Uh, I tend to screw everything up whenever I do stuff in Excel, uh, because I am, I am not, I'm not the best uh, Excel user, nor do I know Python or anything like that. So uh, it used to be free. Now you charge $7.99 a month. But since I could just write it off as a business expense, eight bucks a month just so I could plug in my showdown lineups and go like within 60 seconds after a slate and go, okay, eh, I can take a look at that. Uh, it is worthwhile to me. Uh, are, th- are those the contests that you focus on more? Are you you're less likely to play like the classic MLB, classic NFL are you diving into like F1 or college basketball or, I mean, or are you focused more on, on there's only, there's only 28 things to choose from 
and you have to play one at captain, and I'm going to play a bunch of those types of contests. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's really two things. I think one you definitely hit on is uh, the, the the sports and contest types that are highly um, or, or where duplication and, and being unique is is important. I think is um, one set of contests I like to play. Um, so that's stuff like like you described, like um, F1, MMA, uh, NFL Showdown, even though that, that's gotten harder and harder um, over the, the years since I've been playing, um, stuff like that. And then a handful of other sports um, I play where I th- I, I basically think that there's very little in, in ways of, of projections themselves and in uh, data um, where through, uh, you know, my data collection or ability to, to model, I at least think I, I have an edge. So those, those are really um, the two types of, of things I, I focus on. Well, so sports where like the, the most available industry projections aren't either they either aren't available or they're, uh, in your opinion, at least, uh, much less accurate. Yeah. So uh, some examples of those would be um, college football is one of the, the biggest ones um, where uh, data is really hard to come by. Um, I think that's actually how I started my Twitter account was by uh, starting to post like uh, target counts for for college football players um, because that that data, while readily available for um, for the NFL wasn't super available, at least at the time for, for college football. I was, I wasn't able to find it. So, so that's one sport. And then, um, yeah, yeah. Other ones that are, um, either, yeah. Overlooked in terms of modeling, or I think the there's, there's, uh, opportunities to model better. So, uh, it, your day job, does your day job involve data analysis or is it completely unrelated? No, it's quite related. I'm a I'm an actuary by uh, is my profession. Which, if you're you're not familiar, is uh, there's actually I think it's probably one of the professions that attracts the most or most gamblers come from because it's it's uh, quite similar. Um, it's really pricing uncertainty and and quantifying risk. It it depends a lot on what you do, but at least that's that's the type of work I work in is uh, you know trying to trying to price things that haven't happened yet and what's the, the probability and uh, costs associated with, with that. So do you work for like a financial firm? I work for a consulting firm. Okay. Um, and, and so we have a lot of, a lot of different clients and, and help them with wide variety of, of, of subjects. But yeah, it's, it's a mix between sort of uh, finance, uh, math, my degrees in math, uh, st- statistics, and then uh, sort of computer science, data science. So. Okay, so I mean, so you're you're a nerd like most of the better DFS players. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm one of the better DFS players, but I can I can certainly concur on the nerd. Uh, the running joke with, with actuaries is you, uh, how can you tell a social actuary from a, uh, an unsocial one? Well, the social one looks at your shoes when they're talking to you, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. Yeah, but I think that's a lot. I mean, that I, I think that would be me to some extent. I I think uh, I'm I'm that type of person. Just as if the if the power dynamic is different, I'm very outgoing. So that's why, like you know, I did stand up comedy for 15 years and and acting and improv and was in a band. But it's like those are very defined settings where it's like no, 
you're purposefully paying to look at me talk and whatever type of thing. But like in a n- normal, go out to a bar and there's 50 people there. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the person in the corner going, there's, it's too loud in here. No, and you can't talk or people are moving around. I don't want to drink. Can we just go home and watch Netflix? See that I, I can't, it sounds like you can at least turn on the, the social ability. I, I don't know if I can even turn it on. So, uh, you're one step ahead. You're, you're being social now. This is social, right? Other, uh, than, other if, than the uh, fact that you won't turn on your camera. So like that's, yeah, <laughs> you're, I you, you could be looking down at your shoes right now. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the whole, uh, not sharing the camera, uh, really says, really proves my point here. <laughs> So you so you, I started playing DFS October 2015. Did you did you come on the scene? Or, I mean, I know you don't play professionally, but yeah, I mean, profitably at least as a, as a side thing, you do post a lot of stuff on uh, your Twitter account. Uh, were you we were playing before, like during the beginning of the boom, or because I came on kind of basically once, like a ton of commercial, like the late stage of when the commercial blitz was, and me. Similar to you, I only really followed soccer. So, like, I, for the first, like, year and a half, I just played soccer. And, like, I don't come from a, an actuarial background. Like, I, I come from a, yes, I was an honors math student. Yes, I was a web developer. Yes, I do marketing analytics. So, it's, like, it's related fields, but not to the point in which, like, the, my programming language or scripting knowledge from 2002 uh, ain't going to really cut it. Like if I wanted to get back to like I have to relearn Perl. It's like yeah, good good luck good luck programming everything in uh, in a language where if you if you type an extra space wrong everything explodes. Uh, that like from your experience, you you would have to think that when you started playing DFS, you were realizing things that the field were not. I mean, concepts that probably the most of the industry didn't even know. Yeah, so uh, like I said, I'm in my mid 20s. So when I started, I think I was either early in in college or so. Um, and I was really uh, basically I've only been playing somewhat what I would call seriously for uh, maybe two or three years at this point. Um, up until that point, I I didn't really have any money um, <laughs> to to play more than you know like a handful of dollars. Um, but I, I, I was playing somewhat regularly in college and learning um, and, and mostly losing um, at, at that point. Um, but it was really sort of the past couple of years. Um, honestly, the, the pandemic sort of gave me uh, more time than I ever had, had had. One of the things about being an actuary is you have to take many exams um, throughout the, the education. And so even your free time, you're, you're, you're taking a lot of time to, to study for exams. But... Um, you know, the pandemic gave me a lot more free time to actually sort of build some of the, the stuff I have now. Um, and that's when I think, uh, some of these, these revelations that, that you're sort of hinting to came, came to me, um, when I actually had time to like, you know, appropriately model the stuff. I think I was pretty naive, um, early on when I was starting like, oh, I could build solid NBA projections and then just play that and, and print. But the reality is like, uh, I think one one of the things that that I've I've learned a lot over the the years about DFS is there's a lot more 
to it, uh, you you can't just build a foolproof like math model. You know, for for example, for NBA, uh, you know, if you don't have a good system systematic way to to deal with late swap, for example, or something like that, then you, you're just going to get wrecked. So, um, you know, and obviously you could do that in a basis of math, but yeah, I think I think I've basically uh, probably donated what 25, 30 bucks every weekend you know, through most of the time I played, but the past two to three years, I've, I've taken it more seriously and, um, yeah, have had, had, have had success since, since then. Well, you mentioned the basketball projections. I mean, one, one of the things that, that I, that, I mean, I know that you agree with some things that I say and you disagree with some things that I say, and we're going to get, get into those. Uh, cause I don't, I'm not even sure which is which at, at this point, <laughs> but, uh, one one of the things about like projections is that like yes can i can i build my own model yes can i do it as good as you probably not can i do it as good as most of what the good the good players or at least around the industry can no so why am i taking the time like if the edge like you say oh you can't just make the best projections and print then what is the value of the projections other than a starting point, other than, well, you need something to determine, well, well, yeah, Jokic is most likely going to score more points than, uh, than Wayne Ellington. Like you're going to need something like that just so you know, you know, the basics, like the baselines of everything. And if the uh, industry projections around the industry, whatever site you subscribe to, whether or not you, you do them rudimentary yourself, like if that, if that, if that isn't going to be like the thing that makes you the money, why am I spending the, why would I want to spend the most amount of my time trying to improve what's already available to me either for free? A lot of times not. If I can pay $40 a month for basketball projections that are as nearly as accurate as anything else you could possibly make or NFL projections or just someone else's knowledge that they've already done all of this work that I, my accuracy wouldn't be better than theirs. Should I, shouldn't I be spending more time on the things that once you have something that's reasonably there, that's going to provide you so much more edge because that in and of itself isn't going to do it. Yeah. So I think it, uh, I, I, I generally agree with you. What, what I'll say is, um, the, the only exception to that, I think, is, is some of the sports that, that I play, like I said, where there's, well, well, there's that, bad projections. I understand that. That's a, but, I want but, to make the caveat before you answered that. Right. Like, what, when I asked you before about, like, yeah. that's the ones where you don't think that the industry projections are as accurate, right? I'm talking about more in, uh, in betting, you would call it more liquid markets, right? Mm-hmm. Like markets where if you want NFL projections for a DFS, you, there's... There's tons. They, people may disagree with certain with like target shares or stuff like that. NBA, maybe someone has someone for 30 minutes instead of 32 minutes. But ultimately, the models themselves, like once you get like the minutes and usage right, like how much how much more accurate can they really be? And if you have a choice of four, five, six, even if you aggregate them together, like a lot of times, like that's not much different than taking just one of them to begin with, but in the smaller sport, I can under, totally understand yeah. that you're playing college basketball and some minor teams or whatever. It 
just simply putting in baseline projections from from even a site like Roto-Grinders, which, you know, I obviously do shows on, may not be the most accurate than you doing it yourself. But, Dean, it's kind of weird, that Dean, uh, have, you got, have you gotten to the point, however, in certain of, uh, have you ever experienced in some capacity where you've modeled, you've taken the time and hours to model something that, are you comparing that to what you could find around the industry, probably for a subscription price, and go, well, my model either is not as good as that, especially in the major sports, or maybe portions of how certain things, like if instead of you, maybe you have a, a better uh, a, a, a better understanding of like the share, the NFL, how the, how the teams are going to play more, but uh, the actual modeling of like how that all simulates out is like you instead of doing that yourself, you'd rather just, you know, a lot of people in basketball, a lot of times just take people's baseline projections and just change the minutes because the model in and of itself of usage and rebound rate and all that type of stuff and kind of kind of is accurate enough that why spend 400 hours to do it either slightly better or not much you know like yeah how much you yeah so from I, that yeah so i think you're you're totally right for for the major sports and for the vast majority of people um it's you know i'm talking like probably 99.99 percent of people for these sports it's it's not worth um modeling or trying to build projections because they, they aren't going to be better than what's publicly available the one thing that um building projections, and it depends how you build it, um, affords you is if you build it sort of from a a simulation base um, approach, um, even if your projections aren't necessarily as good, one of the things that that does tell you is um, when it's when it's sort of simulation based, you get a lot more information than what the projections are that are, are just out there. So for example, um, you know, most projection sets, uh, you have no, you basically just have a, a median or mean projection, but you have no idea how, how often that person actually ends up in the optimal. Whereas if you, if you build an actual sort of simulation based projection, your, your, the actual mean projection might even be worse than this, than what's publicly available. Um, but you have at least some way of, of, um, you know, estimating optimal rates, which, which is really, you know, much more important than just a, a mean projection. Um, but you so also, but, that, but, but you also have to consider that I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little and you, and then you're going to clarify. And then I, I, I know how this all works. The optimal rates. What I think what a lot, what people get wrong. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about smart people. I'm talking about that. Not smart people that they'll look at top percentage tools that, those are all also correlated with salary and positional dynamics that, oh, they, they have a less shot at making the optimal because they're a certain position and the strength of that position versus the salary. Like in baseball, well, but baseball is a highly variant sport, but let's say in baseball, like the chances of this cheap pitcher being optimal being be much higher than their ownership. It may be because there's a, seven and a half total team in baseball that's all like $5,500 a piece. And the only way, like if, if, if the Dodgers and Coors go off for 17 runs, 
And having five of those players in your lineup, because they all have like 30 points each, well, the only way to fit those guys in is you can't have the two stud pitchers. So like the stud pitchers will have lower optimal rates and the cheaper pitchers will have higher optimal rates progressively. But like the context of the slate will kind of dictate that and people will go in and go, well, I think the Dodgers are going to be over-owned and I think these cheap pitchers are going to be under-owned and the cheap, these, these these three cheap pitchers are actually going to be 2% owned, but they, they make the optimal 5%, 6% of the time. I'm going to play a bunch of these cheap pitchers together with a stud pitcher and then play this, this other stack that is overpriced, but under-owned. And it's like, well, the combination of all of that isn't the reason why the cheap pitcher's optimal rate is so high. It's because in order to yeah. get the Dodgers, you need to play a cheap pit. Like, like to me, right. that's that's the crux of those. Like, understanding that that as a concept in lineup construction means a lot more than the raw number that you see in a cop. Even if you subscribe to a site that publishes these based on their sims, like, it, you can't just go straight by that or you'll end up getting lineups that are technically really not highly likely to be optimal. It's only because like you're just trying to fit like non-correlative pieces together without realizing that there is a correlate. If the high price fighter in MMA scores 150 points, the optimal rate of some low price fighter are all going to go up because the only way to get that guy is to play a cheap fighter. Yeah, that that's ex- that's like a perfect example of of uh, this the second part of why I think um, building even an imperfect model um, in, via simulation could be super useful because yeah, even the sites that that do publish optimal rates um, they don't really mean anything or mean as much unless you know how those those correlate. Um, the MMA example is is exactly right. So if if you had even if you had you know down from God the the optimal rates of every fighter, it it would be hard or um, harder to build lineups if you didn't know, um, you know, the correlations of those optimal. And and so when you actually build a simulation, you're able to quantify some of the stuff you're you're sort of intuitively talking about, like when the the highest price fighter goes off, the the lower price ones are are more likely to be in it. And I think you know some build rules will just sort of naturally do that because there is a salary cap. But, um, you know, some of the sports are, are quite complicated and there's a lot of correlations and um, it's hard to actually build um, build those lineups unless you you have sort of like a, a basis of, of simulating sort of the whole slate and how different um, fighters or teams or whatever interact with each other. When one one player goes off, how does that impact the likelihood of, of another being in the optimal lineup? And that's that's really hard to do. Um, I'm not aware of any sort of sites that do that. Well, or I mean, make it... if you, if you talk, if you talk to someone like whistles go woo, I mean, like he doesn't have a site, but I'm saying he's done interviews where, I mean, he perfectly says that he really doesn't do his own projections, but yeah, I, I should mean, have clarified. But... I meant it's hard to do with, with what's publicly available. Right. I think anybody, anybody who's, um, you know, simulating, this is just sort of like a natural byproduct of the sim. Um, cause you, you're, you know, you, you simulate a slate and build the optimal off of that or build the top 10 or whatever optimals off of that. And you will just by sort of like the nature of the sim, you'll build in like what is the correlation of every fighter or whatever being in the, the optimal together. And that's just sort of like a result of, of your, your simulation. Right. Because well, what, 
I to use MMA as an example only because it's it's easier because there's less there's less to choose from and less cor- there's less correlation as fight wise between the fights is that uh and we'll and we'll we'll talk about this some because I know you do some at some MMA sims uh that people like I think the mistake would be like would be oh this seven thousand dollar fighter has a way higher optimal rate than what they're most likely going to be owned. I'm going to play them and leave $1,000 on the table, have a $49,000 lineup, so I'm more so I'm unique, without realizing that the reason why the $7,000 fighter is more likely to be optimal is because there's three nine, 9K fighters on the slate that have like 120-plus point scoring potential, and that the 70-point fighter even at 75 points, when that happens, ends up optimal. But at 75 points, if you, unless you get 320-point scores, ain't going to be enough. And if you're purposely going, I'm not going to play any of the fighters that are the most likely to even make those 120-point scores, like now I'm relying on like three fighters. Like you're going you're gonna to be relying on some $8,700 guy, some $8,500 guy going, okay, these are the guys that need to not only outscore the 9K fighters, but score high enough that the 7K fighter at the most likely score of 75 is also optimal. And just from pragmatic, you know, just if you watch MMA, the most likely outcome that if, 75 points ain't going to cut it at 7,000. If you leave 1,000 on the table, no matter probably even what salary range it's in. And the only reason that you're playing that cheap fighter, like, I'm going to play two and a half times the field because, you know, so-and-so is 8% on and there's 16% chance to be in the optimal. But I'm going to fade the 40% on fighters that are 9K because, yeah, they could score 130 points. Well, I just have to fade them not scoring 130 points. It's like those two facts have to be together in your mind and not separate. Right. So, I mean, you, when you ask about projections, I agree that people can add um, minimal value in terms of like a mean projection. I just don't, I don't, I, you have to have a lot of intuition like, like you do or, or have been in this, uh, doing this for, for quite some wa- a time to, to come to those conclusions and build that naturally, at least to me. The only way that I can sort of um, visualize and make sure I'm not breaking some of these rules, and it, it's hard to, to know. I mean, you can have um, good feels on some of these things, but it's, it's hard to know and quantify these things unless you actually um, simulate them out or, or looking at someone's sims who have this out. Because, yeah, like you said, a fighter might be optimal 30% of the time, but maybe all you know, 25% of that time they're paired with another fighter. And if you're not, if you're just playing them at 30% and not uh, pairing them appropriately, like those lineups are probably pretty bad. So, um, you know, it's it's really important that you're, you know, you're able to actually use, use sort of like an empirical basis for um, optimal rates and, and correlate with optimal rates because, you know, them within themselves, like, I, I mean, we've talked about and gave a bunch of examples, isn't super helpful. Right, but I think like Whistles Go Woo, you know, who has a PhD essentially in optimization. I mean, I, to me, that's 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 what he's doing. Where where he could like, I don't have to. I could take someone else's projections, right? As long as percentile projection. I'm not t- just talking about the mean number. Uh, 
and then go simulate that out and then find where those things lay. Because this is something where people will people will look at you funny. They'll look at you funny and then go, well, I, I, I'm going to... You've mentioned it before. People think, I'm just going to get the best projections, press the button, and print, right? And especially in G... Like, in cash games, maybe that's possible, right? In double-ups, 50-50s, head-to-heads, maybe. You have a slight ROI. But they're like... The top mistakes I see are people that I'm just going to go to, I'm going to subscribe to X site. They have the best projections or whatever they think. I'm going to press 150 lineups and just give me 150 lineups. And it's like, well, you're probably going to lose. It's like, well, I thought they have the best projections. It's like, well, it's not just the projections. And then, then, they go, oh, well, they have the best simulations. And they give you these simulated outputs. And you're like, okay, so all I have to do is type in those simulated outputs and press the button on the optimizer. And it's like, nope, you're going to, you're going to be unprofitable that way also. And then people look at you and go, well, if I have one and I have the other, how come, how come you can't just press a button? And it's like, because DFS is so much more of a complex game than just seeing the outputs. Just like most people know, at least smart people know that the, that what you're seeing in a projection, I mean, the dumb people don't, because I have to argue with them all the time where, where, the uh, Dean, I can't believe I still have to call you Dean, but whatever, uh, where I have to argue with someone in, a, in a, on a baseball in a major league baseball where, where, uh, where someone, uh, it has a projection of 12 and then goes over four with like a walk and has two points and they go up oh, projection was off. It's like, it's the mean projection was 12. Like the mean, no one's predicting that they're going to score actually score 12. That is the 50th percentile outcome in a range of like, like obviously this is stuff that's in the core. These are just basic statistics, but a lot of DFS players, the casual ones especially don't understand that. But I think people move over to the simulation aspect where they're not running simulations themselves. They're just seeing raw output on a player by player basis. And they're, and they're viewing it. I think as we described in a very similar way where, oh, well, this guy, th- th- this pitcher, 24% in the optimal. And they got, and it, he, he puts, he actually beats his median, he beats his mean projection by five points and ends up not in the optimal only because he's just too expensive. And some, some either uh, some expensive team went off or it's a, it's a, it's a cheap player. Like a lot of time, oh, seventy six hundred dollar pitcher with uh with the X percent in the optimal, and then some the Pirates at two K apiece go off for twelve runs, and although the that that pitcher puts up twenty two points, which is great for that salary, but the two eleven K ten K eleven K pitchers put up twenty eight and thirty two, which is not for their price, not great, but that's the most points you can get a pitcher. The Pirates stack did well, like. That's what made that optimal. Like, I know we're kind of harping on the same thing over and over again, but I think it's a very, very important point that simulation output can be misinterpreted the same way that median projections are. Yeah, and it's not, uh, at least to me, a, a very easy to determine what the next step is even when you have a simulation output so you know like if taking mma for example you can simulate all the all the fights and have um you know these are 
this is the the most op this is the lineup that's optimal uh, most likely and go down a list. But um, you know what what you wouldn't want to do is just play like the top 150 of those, right? So the the things that I think um, you know like the whistles and the the best players are are really good at is how to optimize um, based off of um, you know like the actual simulation results and optimize for the contest that they're in. Um, I think I, I've I tweeted you know, this at you a week or two ago, but simulating like the, the results of sporting events is not, not that hard um, comparatively to actually simulating what to, what to do with those, those outcomes in terms of like a DFS contest. And, to, and because it, it's very dependent on what the, the field is going to look at. And that is uh, a much more complicated problem, at least for me at this time, than, you know, actually simulating like, you know, MMA is particularly simple, um, but even some of the more complicated sports, um, what is harder to do is is come up with, you know, how to how to uh, use the, the simulated results of the, the sporting events to the actual contest and which what what you do there. Well, I mean, the problem with contest, because well, you're talking about contest simulations, is that yeah. it's not that difficult to simulate contests after the fact. Right. Oh, that's the easy part. Right, that's yeah, the that's easy, easy part because you have all the lineups. If you're gonna play, uh, right. if you're gonna play an MLB contest with thirty thousand entries, and it's like, oh well, now I played my one or a one fifty or whatever amount. I played my one, and then there's thirty thousand other. And I know exactly. I know the exact ownership, and ownership works the same way. Like all the the what we're talking about here with the optimal rates is also the same with ownership. That that. The reason why this guy is is more owned is because that guy is more owned, right? Because it's a salary and position dynamic, and we I talk about this in the cor- course conceptually, uh, but that that also that also takes in, that also matters for ev- for everything else that you do. So like, once you have the contests, like then you could just then as as long as you, obviously your your projections are going to be biased towards yourself, so. Most likely, you're going to have the highest EV because that's what you're every basing week. it on. Yeah, every week, right? All this theoretical EV hasn't right. hasn't been realized quite yet, but right. But but in order to actually utilize that, you have to predict those lineups to begin with, right? Because you can't just oh, I'm going to be able to see what everyone else is going to play, and then I put in my lineups. So, to, what you're describing is that's the hard part of like simulating the contest, which is much better than simulating just the sports performances but do you how how do you how do you go about doing that cuz you almost have to if you 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 have to take if you take ownership projections <clears throat> from around the industry they're going to be highly variant you may not even agree with their methodologies and if you're off by a couple of percentage points on a couple of players like that could dramatically change like it's it's one of those snowball effects that like if you have this guy at twenty, we'll use MMA as an example because it's smaller. Uh, if you have a, if you have a nine K fighter, if you have a, the hot, most expensive fighter on the slate at like thirty eight percent owned, and he comes in at forty six, like that just means a lot of the 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 seven thousand sixty nine hundred seventy one hundred like all of those fighters are going to be more owned. And then the guys that are like 9,400, 9,300, 9,200 be slightly less owned. And like, that's just one fighter. Like, <clears throat> if you're off on some mid-range fighters by two, three, it sounds so little, like two, three, four percent. But 
now all of a sudden certain build constructions work out that <coughs> a lineup that you thought was going to be unique is now duplicated three or four times. And a lineup that you thought was going to be duplicated three or four times is now unique. And the optimal rates of the lineups start changing because, oh, I didn't realize so many more people were going to play a barbell build versus a mid-range build versus a 2-9K build versus how, how owned is the main event going to be? Hey, how many times do we see the main event getting stacked in large fields? 0.4% of the... that Like, if you're off by... Not... It sounds marginal. Like, if you're off by point something, probably you're good enough. But if you're off by, you know, there are many times, many slates where I'm off on one or two fighters by over 5% in ownership. And typically it's because I didn't think they were going to be as highly. It's typically the higher standard deviation fighters on ownership, meaning the fighter that no one wants to play in the 9K range. Well, how much does no one want to play them? Is it going to be 8% owned or is it going to be 12% owned? And the same thing on the bottom end, like the, the biggest underdog. Is he going to be 4% owned or 7% owned? And it sounds weird, but those are the those are the ones that you have to get right most importantly. Not the ones where the guy's going to be, I think he's going to be 36% owned and he comes in at 35 or 34 or 38. And he's in a range where if you're not, if you're off by 2%, you're probably not changing many what of what lineups look like. Right, because you know a low percentage. I mean, someone going from one to two percent is is doubling, right? The number of lineups that they're in versus you know thirty five to thirty seven is very minorly as a percentage of of what was you expected to be there, uh, increasing. So yeah, I mean it's it's right. This is the hard part of DFS to me. Is is um, yeah, once you you have the outcomes, what do you what do you actually play based on that? And MMA is one of the um, the better sports, I think, for this to talk about because it's it's by far to me one of the mo most simplest. Um, just because um, you don't have uh, correlation between fighters really, besides the, the ones that are fighting, and so you know you also, what, what you also don't have the captain slot as yeah. well, so you reduce the amount of lineup combinations. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, what what I generally do is I I try and I simulate out. Uh, a Slater contest or whatever, um, come up with the ones that I think, uh, so So then I'd have what, what's most likely to be, you know, optimal. Optimal being somewhat, uh, another another important thing to, to mention here is when I'm saying optimal, I'm talking about being truly the highest scoring uh, available. Line. Yeah, right. But, and that, um, you know, some people might have have issue with this, but, you know, for MMA, it's, it's to me, a pretty good proxy because the majority of the time it's it's close to the optimal as the winning lineup. Um, another reason why sports like MLB or NFL or something are are hard to me to solve is because, you know, if you don't want to be playing anything close to, you know, your quote unquote optimal from Sims because every almost you know, if you run ten thousand Sims, the optimals are always gonna be probably like unstacked, just crazy crazy lineups that don't make any sense really um, to, to play. Um, and so optimal, you know, is different uh, in a sport where, you know, the, the winner is, is very likely to be like the actual highest scoring lineup. Um, it becomes more complicated um, in sports where that's not the case, but right. Yeah. I mean, just, just to clarify uh, in MMA, most likely more times than not the best possible lineup is the winning GPP lineup in a large field contest. 
Occasionally mm-hmm. get the second optimal, the third optimal. But even in the millimaker in the NFL, you put 400, 500,000 entries in, the best possible lineup may be 30 or 40 points higher than what wins the million dollars. So imagine how many lineups are, bet- if the winning millimaker lineup is 237 and the optimal is 267. So there's 30 points in between. You know how many combinations that you can make for, for 30 points? I mean, the winning the winning lineup in the millimaker is probably not in the top 100,000 optimals. It's just that those optimals said there is some random 3K guy that scored a touchdown in the in the, the dying minutes of a like like guys that are either 0.1% or less owned or completely uncorrelated messes MLB 15 game slate like yeah. the, the the winning the the, the best possible lineup is going to have like 260 270 points and you'll see the large field GPP the winner has 215 right because like you don't need to score the best possible lineup you just need to score the highest out of what is realistically going to be played. But in MMA, and even to mo- some a lot of extent, NFL showdown, NBA showdown, the very limited amount of lineup combinations, most likely you're aiming for what's the nut lineup, right? In Millie Makers, like, if you were to truly go, I want to aim for the nut lineup, you'd be playing, you'd, you'd, MLB, you'd be playing, I mean, God knows what. I mean, you'd be, you're, even if you went by your Sims, and also, even if you were to try that, 10,000 Sims weren't, were, were, wouldn't even be enough for that, right? You probably need, I don't even know, I wouldn't even gather uh, so many that it would it would be maybe not even possible to even do. Yeah, and uh, MLB is another good example where, uh, it, yeah, it, it's clear that you're not trying to, to build for like the actual true highest scoring lineup. Um, you know, because if you just uh, look at some of the top players, I think how they they play their pitchers. If you simulated out all the pitchers on like a 12 game slate, um, you know the the lower uh, projected pitchers are always going to be quote unquote under owned to their their optimal. Um, but you know, very few of the top players will will actually be overweight on those because I think for the most part they're they're building um, around. Uh, more so sort of like optimal stack rates um, and then filling in filling in pitchers from there um, to, to sort of get the most uh, highest dollar or highest projected um, pitchers from there. So it's it's a very different problem. Um, and like I said, t- to me, one is it's much easier to solve than the other because, you know, in a sport like MLB, it's very dependent on what the field is going to do. Again, it goes back to sort of like simulating out what like how owned people are going to be. Whereas in MMA, the decisions to me are really more like how, how often is this lineup going to be optimal and how, how often is it owned and, and making a decision that way, which is, um, which is different than, you know, the, the optimal definition in, in say MLB, uh, where it's, you know, like optimal for the contest rather than just like highest scoring. Right. Cause we'll see a lot of times, I mean, on, on slates, Let's say it's a 14 game MLB slate and the two and the winning lineup of the large field GPP has it like on FanDuel, even, even better has one of the two top projected pitchers in it, even though they were like the sixth and seventh highest scoring pitcher on the slate. 
because a couple of there's a guy that there, there's the highest pitcher on the slate was 0.4% owned. Now, in order to be the winning GPP lineup, you had to play that guy and then still get everything else right. And there just aren't that many lineups with that guy in it that you're not going to have to worry. Tip A lot of times you're just not going to. Sometimes it ends up being that way. So, yeah, I guess so. But like on DraftKings, you have to play two pitchers. A lot of times the top, the winning GPP lineup will, especially since pitchers are less variant, uh, will contain two somewhat owned pitchers and it comes down to the question like here, here the the how, how how i could tell someone if someone understands statistics or they someone that thinks they understand statistics to a lay person right I, I teach a lot of more beginner beginner to intermediate players where uh i'll i'll ask someone will be re- really owned you'll i'll see this in in the roto grinders discord sometimes some pitcher or some fighter or some something be ridiculous, some basketball player, right? Especially in basketball, right? Where some guy could be 4K and project for God knows how much. And they'll be, just let's use an extreme example. They'll be 90% owned. And then someone will say to me, uh, they don't have a 90% chance of, of being in the optimal lineup. And I go, you're absolutely right. But they have they're most likely going to be in the, winning GPP lineup. And they go, they go, well, what happens if they, what happens if they get injured? I said, they're still more, more likely to be in the, the, the winning GPP lineup. And they go, and, and, and they, they go, how is that possible? And I go, because 90% of the lineups have him in it. Like he has, they're 90, they're, if there's a, if there's a hundred co- entries in this contest and 90 have this player in it. Like, even if he scores a zero, Nine, one of those 90 lineups is still possibly has a decent sized chance of winning the hundred man contest against the 10 lineups that don't have a zero and just don't get enough points. So like the sheer amount of lineups that are in the contest will raise these rates also of, yeah, obviously it's more likely like, like there's a difference between the optimal lineup and the winning lineup. So like a guy could have like, Oh, he's going to be twice as owned as what he's going to appear in the optimal. Yeah, but he's also most likely going to be in the winning lineup only because he's high. It's like, it's that, that paradox of two. And a lot of people don't like get that after that. And this comes, this comes into the, the under-owned, over-owned type of thing where it's quite possible that a player that is over-owned is, is still more beneficial in your lineups than not playing them only due to that the sheer amount of lineups that have them in it and you can't make certain combinations without them. Like, it's not one of these types. It's not MLB with a one-off and there's 14 games on the slate. I'm talking about more for the PGA show, maybe not small field PGA, MMA, NFL showdown, where it's like, well, either play this over-owned guy or who else are you going to play in order to make this combination? You're, let's say you already have a combination that's unique. But I'm playing this overowned guy. It's like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you play that? You're already unique, and you're playing a guy that is overowned, less likely to be optimal. But he's also the highest projected player at that spot. Are you purposely going to lose projection because of? I mean, like to me, these are the to me that this this is what I believe. You have to have these 
the mindset of thinking conceptually, like you do, you're doing stuff. Obviously, you understand these concepts, but you come from them from the bottom up, and I come from from the top down. Going, like I think I could get to where you are just by really intuitively understanding a lot of these concepts, and then guy kind of being directionally accurate enough, kind of hacking stuff together, and then getting similar plus EV lineups. And then there's also a lot of people on the bottom that I talk to that are like, I didn't even realize these concepts existed. It's just that that's what the simulations spit out. And like that, like I talked to Nerdy Tenor, he goes, a lot of times, I don't even know, I don't even know why these lineups are more profitable until he looks at them and goes, well, these lineups actually adhere to a lot of the concepts that I talk about. And he gets to them like the bottom up way. So a lot, sometimes I like the fact that other people like you figure stuff out and I go, okay, that makes sense with what, with what I conceptually understand. So like, I'm not, I'm not crazy because I can't reproduce what you're doing. All I could do is go, well, I'm going to play this way and I'm going to play this way for a long time. And, uh, yeah, apparently I'm profitable doing this. So I, I think the concept makes sense. And then you, then you make these little rudimentary Sims in Excel and you go, okay, you do it at the exaggerated way. Like, let's just have a have a contest that it's a hundred man contest, and ninety nine people have the same lineup, right? And then I just change my lineup. What happens if I play this lineup, then that lineup, then the lowest projected lineup? How much? How often do I win like that? And then you go, well, if that's true, well, what happens if ninety eight people have the same lineup? What happens? If and then you scale it down, and you go, well, this this variable obviously has an effect. I'm not the best at precisely. What that that's what I was going to say. Right. That's what I was going to say. So one of the, yeah, I mean, that that's really right. The added benefit is I was, I was watching your stream earlier today and you um, were talking about three mans, I think. And, and what is the line of like how, how far off optimal you, you want to play if two people have very similar lineups um, and you intuitively understand, like you, you, you want to play different, but um, you know, without actually simulating it, uh, yourself, it, it's hard to know like what is actually the optimal strategy. Like, do I play one point and share three guys, or, or only have three guys different? Do I have to play two points off and, and have six guys that are different? What is actually like the the best point? And that is really, you know, that that type of answer you could really only answer like you know with an actual simulation. So, but those I, are I, I don't but dis- those are fairly easy. But those are a little bit easier simulation problems, at least for me. The fewer the people. Yeah, certainly. And that's why um, a lot of what I play and focus on is, is smaller field, like, like, yeah, under, you know, 15 people where in in sports where you have a really good idea of what um, the field quote unquote, because it's so small is going to play um, because it's much easier than to um, it's hard to build an entire, what an entire contest is going to look like. It's much easier to, assign probabilities to what, uh, you know, two or three people are going to play and then come up with optimal solutions off of that. And I, th- and I think that my, even my directionally accurate strategy for the three mans, I think it's more of a, it's more of figuring out what's optimal, but I think anything that I, I think most of what I could do, even if I'm off is still profitable. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that example you were showing today where they, they're playing a one V one and you're playing something entirely different um i don't do mlb projections or anything so assuming you were you know in the neighborhood of of their projected lineups yeah i mean i think that that's certainly correct 
Right. I, I showed that extreme example on the stream on purpose because, but the whole point on purpose does go, here's the most extreme. That's not a duplicated lineup. Cause we could all agree that if they were duped completely, like I win, mm -hmm. like, like I could probably lose a lot of projection, even more. The most amount, like if they're duped completely, I could have the lowest, like it, for, for them to reach equilibrium with me, I would have to sacrifice so much more projection for them to be break even because they don't even win. They only split X amount of the time against one single line. I mean, that that's, I mean, that's how you would have collusion to some extent, but if that's the case, then if they're off by a one V one, that still has to apply with the nine other people in their lineup also. Right. So like there's going to now the project, if for instance, if they have a dupe lineup, if I simulated out a dupe lineup and I go, I'm profitable anywhere up to a, a median projection, even though that's that's a little blunt, of 12 points underneath them. Like, if I go past 12, they still win too much of the time that they could still see profit from it, and I will lose equity. But at 12, I we break even. At 11, I'm profitable. At 10, I'm more pro Like, And I get even more. And obviously, as I get closer to their lineup my line should actually start to come down now, right? Because now we're going to be sharing more players and we're going to be splitting more more often to each other. So there's going to be some line there where you go from not profitable to the most profitable, then down to little less, little less, little less. And then if you dupe them, obviously in DraftKings, you get the rake back, so it'll end up being even. But let's say if you count the rake and you have to pay it, like all three of you are unprofitable, like there has to be a, a line, an equilibrium of that. There has to be some line where on average, obviously it's slate, everything's slate dependent, but then what happens when they're off by a 2v2 or they're off by a 3v3? Like, is it better, for instance, to not play? If I could not play the lineups that they both, the players that they both share, do I mind playing a lineup with one with with a player that one of the players have, or would it be better off if I didn't share any of the players? Like, but to me, those to me, I, those are the problems I find interesting. Of like, that's simulating like what would be the line. But in re, in realism, I don't mind playing with real money while doing this because I I believe intuitively that. Uh, even though I'm not at that optimal point on that curve, possibly, I'm somewhere around it that I'm still making money regardless, but intellectually and probably financially too, I want to find out what the fucking line is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, what you're saying totally makes sense. And, and yeah, my, my point was that the, the simulation can kind of, kind of find that point or you could do it, um, you know, try and find it in sort of empirically as you're doing um, through you're just being in the contest. Um, you know, the, the problems um, as they become more complicated, right? So, you know, let's say you have, you have a, someone playing the optimal and someone playing something, doing basically what you're doing, playing something close to the optimal, but entirely different. Now, what, what would your optimal strategy be there? Is there, is the, is it profitable for you to even play it? Um, you know, I've run into, uh, different three mans or four mans, different contests where 
you could be pretty certain that someone's going to play something and basically your options are um play play something else and you're you're negative to them or play that and you're obviously negative to them so basically they're sort of it's it's sort of like a game of chicken and and your options um you know there's really no profitable way to play the contest potentially right. so I, I mentioned it, you watched the stream i was talking about that on this if one guy enters and it's like if I, that's why i i was i was, I'm, I'm sitting there going i'm going because I'm looking, because I'm looking at what's actually happening. I have se- I have seven days worth of data, and I'm taking out that data, and I'm looking at three like different types of things, and especially at a FanDuel, because I think it's a little bit softer. I'm finding people that are the third guy in three mans, or the fourth and fifth people in five mans that are playing awful lineups, that are just playing lineups that are like way like even if you if I I would surmise I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try simulating in Excel. I'm going to see what their lineup compares to if played against two sharper players that only have like a 2v2 or a 3v3 and see their lineup is like 13, 14 points off, but maybe against a 2v2 against two sharps, they're actually the most profitable lineup in the context. The line is that far down because of it. And then if that's the case, my lineup, like... If I'm if that guy is 14 points lower and I and I know the top one is playing the quote optimal or something, like is there should I be playing that? Let's say there was a line there that if the, that guy is 14 and the other one has the zero, if I play minus three, I become the most profitable lineup. And it's in that contest. But in another contest, the three man, if I play against two people that have 14 point lower projections. And I play the optimal. What's my what's my so against the two really bad players? And then what's the profit of if I play the two sharpest players that are playing the optimal and a two v two, and I play one like three or points lower? It's quite possible simulating those three instances that the most profitable situation to be in is to play against the two best players on the site. Quote unquote. Yes. If they are, if they're playing something so similar, I, I again, it's hard to answer. This is why I, I'm so in favor of, of simulating and doing your own projection because it's it's so hard to actually answer these things um, without without actually running it. And um, but you know, but, one I, of but, the... but 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 Dean, I think it's important. Like you're you're trying you're 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 the, you're in the second stage. Like I'm I'm at your stage now. I'm at I'm at. How do I solve the problem? But. It, would would you agree that 98, 99% of people that play DFS, right, outside of nerds like us, aren't even thinking of these pro- aren't even thinking of the problem. Like yeah, aren't even no, under- I- aren't even understanding like like, oh, we the the common like they they go from these these are the stages. They go from, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go play I'm gonna go play head to heads. Right, they go. Okay, we're talking about this type of level. Not we're not talking about GPPs. We're talking more cash game ish. So they go. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna get the bad projections for MLB, and I'm gonna play the bad optimal in in head to heads, and I'm just gonna try to find the worst players, right? Which to me is a profitable strategy. You fight, go find three man, basically go and bum hunt, right? Poker term, right? You go, you find players with no badges, but. How many of those can you find, and what at what stakes can you find them in? Uh, do you want to battle for the lobby for people that could possibly take? I mean, there's another step for that, 
And it's like, okay, I'm just going to play what I believe is the optimal lineup and find anyone that could play me for twice my money, right? For 1.8x or whatever with the rake or 2x, play double ups and just hope other people make mistakes. I just need to find the mo more people that make mistakes than me. But then those people then also go, I'll play three mans and go, uh, that not maybe the best. I'll also throw this in a single entry line. Now that may not be the best lineup for that. And then they don't realize what they're doing wrong. Or they'll go into, they'll throw it into triple ups and go, nope, that's not, that's not the best for triple ups. Or they'll go, well, what the second stage now, this is once you get to the projection standpoint. Of course, 95% of people that are casually playing DFS don't even know what the fuck projections are. So now once you get to this point, what you end, what ends up happening, this happens a lot in, in, in NBA, is that you'll go on FanDuel in 100-man 50-50, and especially on a slate where there's like multiple injured players and obvious mispricings, uh, and see uh, 62 people with the same lineup. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and 44 people with the same, exact same lineup and then go, is it profitable? To, and what will inevitably happening, even like on a 40 way lineup in a hundred man con 50, 50, that 40 train will go right past the cash line, like in the middle. And then it, instead of like in a double up, instead of going from five to 10, you go five to $6 and 68 cents. And then people will say to you, uh, is it profitable to play? If everyone's going to be playing the same lineup in a 50-50 type of scenario or head-to-heads, which you'll get the rake back, uh, is it profitable to do so? Should I be playing the second, right? Not many people get to that point. It's it's it, To me, it seems like the such obvious thing. Most people go from, I'm going to get projections. I'm going to play head-to-heads. I'm going to play the optimal. And then when they get so many ties, they're like, how do I block the people that play, play the same lineup? Instead of thinking in terms of, how do I exploit the people that I know that are going to be playing the same lineup? Like, they don't think, like, even the sec in 50-50s playing the second optimal is not, there's no, the duplication benefits in 50-50s are even. It does, it, it literally doesn't matter what you do. Now, when, when the rake is involved, once you get to like 45 lineups being duped, right? Now your your option isn't not to change your lineup. Your 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 correct your optimal choice is to just simply not play the contest. Not to play a lineup that's worse than it just to be different. Once you get into progressive contest, now it pays to be different, but that adheres to the the leverage concept of what GP, GPPs are, relative value, finding points that other people aren't getting. But so many people don't go like Dude, there's so many people that got at halfway through an NBA season are like, I'm quit playing cash. Everyone's playing the same lineup. Should I be? And then they, they purposely are like, should I be playing a worse lineup just to be different? And it's like, oh, you so don't get the concept. Like, like, like if you just thought the other way around, you'd, you'd open yourself up to a lot more things, which involved the good GPP strategy with like all the other concepts of DFS exist from the opposite side of that mentality. And so many people don't get there. I think that it's really hard though, for a casual player to deal with the, the, the actual variance that it would take to ever realize that. I think there's probably a ton of survivorship bias in, in DFS, like people who win early and stick around because the, the variance in these, these large field contests is just, 
absurd. Um, you know, if you ever if you ever sim out even someone who has an edge, um, I mean, anybody who's played for an extended period of time in these contests knows this. If you, I mean, there's there's occasionally pros will will tweet out their their roto trackers and and talk about some of the downswings, but um, like it, there's just no no possible way that a, uh, someone who's not grasping sort of the concepts that that you're talking about to me could ever stick around for for some of the the swings uh, unless they they hit very early right so um i'm sure there are many people who who the reason they're in dfs today is, is just really because they won early and had a lot of time to um sort of learn o- over that time and get better um so i mean I, I think that's that's a big part of it i mean the other thing i wanted to say on, on the cash game thing is i see people posting screenshots you're talking about like you know Oh, look at look at this fish who played this this awful lineup in a head to head, because it's different than them. The the one thing that that is also valuable about having your own projections um, that are simulation based is you can actually see how how often you win. And I I think people say like, oh my wow, my lineup is projected whatever three three four points higher than theirs. That might be within the deviation of where you're you know losing to the rake right, depending right. on the sport. You know, so like. You know, in some sports that are highly variant, um, you know, like I would, I would, I haven't done this, but like say, say for baseball or, or football, I'm guessing you have to be considerably higher, um, you know, to actually make money o- over the rake uh, in any sort of like head-to-head contest. So, um, you know, that's an, another thing is you you might be thinking you're playing well and have this this big advantage, but you don't actually necessarily know um, because you don't know how profitable being one. Point or two points three is unless you you actually have some way of of quantifying that right i mean even i i, I mean I've, I've told people i said as as if if you were to play like i would say my best sport is soccer out of out of all the sports i mean there's a lot of and there's a lot of sharp cash players in soccer that will lose out to the rake if anything uh but even in soccer if i say i'm the best on a normal size slate on a four five game soccer slate if I were to play, if I were to play a head-to-head against a random person, I'm going to choose soccer compared to, and I mean, it could be any sport, but like, like, dude, the, at as long as as long as they put in players that are starting, and they use up most of their salary cap, like, I'm like, maybe at best a seventy percent favorite against them. I mean, like, like, which is which is a great edge, a nice two to one, two and a half to one edge, which. I'll shove in all the time with that. I mean, like in, in poker, you'd shove you'd you'd shove with those edges. You're gonna still lose like a third of the time or a quarter of the time, and that's against the worst. Like someone that is literally, if you in in uh, in basketball, right, where product where the variance is low and the production is very close tied to salary, uh, and on an efficient slate. Right with no injuries or anything like that, or on a, even on a baseball. If we say that the market is more efficient, like you see, sharp people. I see pseudo sharp people. I call them pseudo sharps, people that think they're smart. Argue for uh, sharper pricing, sharper salaries, and I never understand that because if they were perfectly sharp, no one would. Everyone would lose to the rake because. As long as you used all your salary, you'd have the same lineup as anyone else. If if the salaries were perfectly efficient, now on a day to day basis, you don't know what's going to happen. But over the long run, so when I tell people, it's like like dude, 
Anyone that uses fifty thousand dollars in salary in a in a sport that uses starters, right, that are actually going to play, uh, and the and there's no obvious mispricings. I can't. I can't see them ever being. You, you're not going to beat the like. How are you beating the rake even? How do you beating ten percent rake even on that? And people that don't understand that go. No, I thought in head to head you'd have like you'd win ninety percent of the time. It's like no one wins ninety percent of the time. They would have to. I would have to be playing against people that put in injured players and people that are not starting or people you know whatever. I mean like no one is that big of a dog in those scenarios. And this and the same applies to like GPPs where especially on large slates in highly variant sports, it's like, dude, you could possibly simulate out like hundreds of thousands of lineups that are profitable, that on certain days are going to not win and certain days are going to win a lot. And there, if everyone is playing to some reasonable extent, right, where they're not playing injured substitutes in, in MLB, they're only get one at bat relief pitchers or something. It's like, if you, even if you use all one-offs, and you're using all of your salary, and there's no obvious price mistakes, right? So everyone's 50k is kind of 50k. It's hard to build a bet. It's hard to build a significantly worse lineup than someone else. So like that's what you mean by the variance of like the margins of uh, the difference between a good player and a great player in DFS is not that dramatic. The difference between a bad player and a break-even player. It's not that dramatic. The difference between a bad player and a great player could be enough to be profitable, but there aren't that many horrific players where just being break even would be even worth playing. There's we're a lot a lot of what we're playing in DFS. We're playing a thirty thousand field GPP and twenty six thousand of the lineups are. Dude, anyone got a shot? Let's see who let's see let's see what comes up first. Like anyone any one of us is close enough that why not? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably one of the the things that we at least in the past seem to have disagreed with. This this line of reasoning is I I think why I'm probably more bearish on DFS long term than you because as that that number continues to go up and approaches, you know, entire contest playing at least um, well enough that they they can't be exploited over the rake. Um, you know everybody's just going to lose to the rake, and and as soon as but you know, hold, top... hold on a second. So do you at least agree with the with with what I'm describing at least the the the, the fact that that eighty uh, percent like eighty percent of the lineups in a specific contest are more or less very similar EV to each other. Uh, so what what's actually I actually posted about this yesterday in MMA. Um, I had never really looked at this, but what what it actually, um, in, at least in MMA, is there are the the EV is dominated by a few very high EV lineups. Um, yeah, but uh, it's just not not to cut you off again. But I, it, if you listen to the podcast, I, you know I, do I was prepared. I was prepared. prepared. I was prepared. Only because yeah. clarified. I'm not to, this. I want to separate this from MMA because what I'm talking about is more. The, the the classic slates where duplication is not that big of a factor where, oh, you're going to play this line, you know, this stack with that stack or NFL line, like I'm because in MMA, I don't want to, a lot of that profitability comes to 
not what's most likely, but what's also less duplicated. MLB doesn't really have that. Yeah. I never play MLB going, I need to check how many dupes this is going to have. Maybe on a two-game slate, but like on a 12-game slate, like you're not, like the profitability, the duplication factor is not going to be anything. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about. The reason why I believe MMA has so much more of an edge is because of what you're going to explain is because in MLB in a 30,000 entry contest, there's going to be like, like 4,000 lineups that are like really you shouldn't be playing. And then like 26,000 lineups are left and maybe 2,000 of those 26,000 are decently, you'd rather be playing those lineups. And maybe there's 2,000 on the bottom end of that 26,000 that you're like, you're break even at best, but then like in the middle, like a, like two thirds of the lineups are like, you're they're They're slightly profitable only because of these, these bar, the, the, the barbell effect. But like the differences between them are not that dramatic and they all look kind of different, but in MMA, you don't get on MMA to me. My, my, if you did the same thing, I'm, I'm, I'm would theorize that in a 30,000 field, contest i think 20 26,000 are the negative ev lineups yeah that sounds about right um i i, I agree with your general premise i think the, the vast majority of lineups in in any contest again not having looked at other sports besides mma probably are hover slightly negative ev and then there there's a, a smaller proportion that is probably slightly positive ev when you when you take into account the rake but they're all for the most part, generally hovering around zero is, is probably, I mean, even in, in the curve for MMA, that that's true. Um, there's, there's most of the lineups, even from winning players are right around zero or, or slightly negative um, with the rake. Uh, the winning players, I think, are just able to to submit, you know, like more of the, the good lineups, right? So, um, yeah, I, I agree with your general premise that uh, there are way fewer people who are there's not many people who are just like pure drawing dead in DFS anymore, at least in my opinion, in most of the major contests. Most people are at least putting in lineups that are um, reasonable and, and have similar equity to um, whether that be, you know, even if that's negative um, equity to, to most of the other lineups in the contest. Um, and yeah, I mean, that that's, that's what I was getting into of why I think it's just going to become harder and harder, um, you know, as, as people become better and better. And it, without the rate going down, eventually, you know, I, I see a world where people are, there's, there's not enough people left who are, who are putting in bad lineups that, um, you know, that are paying the winners, basically. And um, once that happens and the, the winners go, you know, the, the big players stop playing, I think it, it quickly could fall apart. But I'm not, I'm not as bearish because I think in the major sports, there's, there's enough bad, there's, NFL might NFL is probably the exception. NFL is probably the exception. But I mean, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't been playing some of these major sports for that long. But I, I, I it seems like they're they're decreasing in popularity. I don't know if that's that's true. But now what, um, what they will what they but but DraftKings will say because I've I've seen some things from DraftKings. People misappropriate like popularity with like active users. And obviously a lot of stuff they're doing with the sports book. DFS has grown over the past three years. It's just, it's grown in user base, but not in frequency. 
So when when you say when the people we're talking about, you can't most people can't conceptualize because they're they're the single lineup, they're the two line, they're the infrequent players that play often enough but not frequent enough. Like it's someone that there's enough people in the United or in the world, but in the United States that on a given night of NBA are going to get home from work and build three lineups. They may not play tomorrow or the next day. They may not play for another five days, right? They may build a lineup here. They may play it in this contest. They may, like, they're not building 150. They're not building even 20. They're building a handful of lineups and, and sweating the games. But there's tons of those people. And then on different days, different people play. Like, it's like a, like 20% of the field is that type of player that if you ask them, uh, have you ever heard of Roto-Grinders? They go, I don't know. What the hell are you talking about? Right? Which is the oldest site, obviously. But you could say Awesomeo or Stochastic or whatever. Name content sites. Name Adam Levitan, ETR, Adam, and, and name for football. And they go, I don't, I, I watch NBA and I have fun playing the games. I mean, like, there's there's a lot more of those people than you think. And you're not going to see the same username over and over again because they're not playing like every day, every slate or anything like that. Now, for the cash games, for 50-50s and double ups, I think that's that that's that's dead. I think Yeah, my my concern is that those people they just are going to get wrecked so quickly that it's going to be you're going to have to keep bringing them in, right? Like I I don't see those people necessarily lasting because when they come, their money is going to go so much further sports betting than it would say entering like an NBA GPP. And I, I think they're, they're going to quickly realize that and, um, you know, stop playing. So if you can have an infinite flow of those people, um, you know, I'm sure some of that flow has come from sports betting and people getting into that for the first time and saying, I'm going to try out this DFS. But if they deposit a hundred dollars and play DFS, you know, for a week and just get wrecked, but can play for two months sports betting, like eventually, you know, those, the casuals dollar and most people's dollar, um, you know, they're just, they would be so much better off betting on sports than playing DFS for the vast majority of people. You're thinking too rationally. People aren't rational. People just want to get wrecked. No, they don't want to get wrecked. I I know when I know I, I will be bearish on DFS. I mean, this is what this is. I mean, this is my long-term plan. Uh, DFS compared to sports betting is the only thing that adheres to what casual people want to do. Take a small amount of money and make a lot of money. Okay. Now I know you can make a 16 leg single game parlay and try to whatever. Yeah, the fuck. They, that's what I'm saying. They are, they, they, no, I, I mean, these, these but ca- people, companies no, know no, that. No, no, people know here's the difference between DFS and sports betting. Also, cause I talk to casual people. And that I play DFS because they every once in a while a friend or something will DM me or text me. Uh, they know that a sixteen leg parlay is minus. They they know they're throwing their money away. DFS it makes it feel like I'm competing against other people, and I think I know the sport better than others. I I'll, I'd like to put ten dollars to possibly win fifty thousand. Putting ten dollars to win fifty thousand in a parlay, they know. Is a long. It, it, they know that it's against on the book. They they know they're doing it purely for entertainment, but they much rather feel like they have a better shot. And DFS offers that now. The small to big. 
Now, if you if you're actually looking at return money ROI and have the the least negative ROI, yes, you're absolutely right. Sports betting, but that will change when uh, more states legalize sports betting and we get liquid uh, multi-state markets on sports betting paramutual games. Meaning that put ten dollars in pick the simplest version is like a contest where it's 14 NFL gets 14 NFL games. Here are the spreads. You gotta pick, you gotta pick, you gotta pick all the winners, right? You put in ten dollars to win a hundred thousand. Now, obviously, just like salaries, the spreads aren't gonna change. They're not they ain't changing. So, like if the line moves. Right, if the Chiefs, if Mahomes is out and the Chiefs were a nine-point favorite and now they're a four and a half point favorite, well, it's still minus nine in this contest. And you know, so many people are gonna be be picking the other side. So maybe the Chiefs will only be 13% owned. Like now we starting talking about like now it becomes a peer-to-peer contest. I, I know this idea has I know, yeah. I mean, this idea has has obviously been probably around since DFS, and I think some of the some of these like prop sites have have stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not super optimistic that these that these are going to ever grow to something big because from the sportsbooks perspective, like I don't know what the benefit of offering something like that as opposed to offering oh. just these same game parlays are no. right because they that you have it no cost risk. more. No, no, no. You have no risk. It, Dude, the DFS is profitable because they're taking 10 to 15% off with zero. They have zero risk. They don't have to price anything. It's just as uh, if it wasn't for the fact that UIGA forces them to post guaranteed prize pools, they just scale it up just like a poker contest with a percentage, 40% to 30% to first. They wouldn't even have to worry about overlay. And it's like, as long as we get, they don't care who wins. They don't have to have any any type of any, like, dude, we just get 15% of everything. Like in same gay parlays, their, their holds are much higher, but it's not the largest percentage of their business. And there's still a risk and they have to still have to price everything better. They have to get all the correlations, right. And they have to hope to get the biggest idiots to bet, but how much money can they $5 here, $3 there on single game parlays where the risk management of that is so much, wouldn't they much rather, we have all these lines, and no matter what, I mean, that's the whole point of the VIG, right? It's like, oh, we want even action on both sides, and we'll take a nickel in the middle. It's like, what happens if you took 15 cents on everything and never had to price anything? Like, wouldn't that be so much more worthwhile? It may not be the bulk of their business, but imagine, look, imagine running a Millie Maker. We're doing, every week, there's a Millie Maker in NFL Pick'em. And all you have to do is pick the pick the. I mean, this is the most basic form of this type of contest. That would be easy for someone to understand. But it could be sides and total. You have to pick eight sides and totals, uh, spreads, and uh, something that's even minus one ten on both sides, and you just have to pick eight of them, right? And it's you either right or wrong. So the eight, if you get eight right, you split the pot with, and there's some tiebreaker or something like that. Now, based on those choices, obviously, there's 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 ownership, there's a leverage component. There, we get a DFS style component to that, but we're offering you to bet on a parlay for ten bucks to win a million, which probably won't be a million because it'll be split 
47 ways. Uh, and the sites just take 15% and don't have you. How would they, they, we're going to give away a million dollars and we make money on the contest rather than having to pay out a million dollars on some, some market that they fucked up. And, you know, a lot of people bet on one side and the line moves. They don't have to deal with any of that shit. To me, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have no insight into to how sportsbooks think about this. My perspective is that they don't, as it as it's as it stands, they they don't necessarily uh, view their same game parlays as a, as a huge risk, right? I mean, anybody who who shows a pulse will generally be out um, af- quickly after taking them, and and what, what's left is you're right. It's it's not high dollar betters for the most part, um, but it's 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 really no different than than say DFS. I mean, they might have, you know, whatever, a couple thousand put in same game parlays. If so, if one person wins, that's like paying out a DFS contest, no, no different than, than what you're describing. And the, the other thing I would say is I think you can design the game in probably a, an interesting way, but at least the way, one of the things that makes DFS interesting is, is like the whole projection part of the game. And that in sports betting is, mostly removed so all you're left with it's sort of your example of um perfect pricing now like you said the lines could move but everybody's going to be aware of that and i would quickly i would think that very very quickly um the game is sort of solved that people are playing everything at optimal rates if if the line was seven and now it's eight and that means team covers 55 percent of the time they're going to be on 55 percent of the time so it would be really hard to, and, and even if you designed it on money lines or whatever, everybody would have a very, very good estimate of um, probabilities, um, just like, you know, immediately just using markets. So it becomes complicated how you make that game exploitable, um, because if, if everything is, quote unquote, all the picks are owned at the optimal rate. But they won't um, be. But they won't be. I, I mean, I, I just have a hard time if, you know, like, you're describing DFS. You're just you're you're basically you're basically saying, uh, like, well, if all the players were priced uh, efficiently, right, mm-hmm. then no lineup would have better than the others. But like, dude, we 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 have I I could play head I could play head to heads in NBA where there's a three K where the entire Milwaukee Bucks lineup is out and there's literally only one person on the court. That that is going to do play forty eight minutes and be three k, and then go and play fifty head to heads and have five head to heads where that guy that my opponent didn't didn't even play that that guy, like like right. But but it, in a contest of of fifty, like is that five even enough to to pay for the rake? And that that's that's what I think is is important. Is I mean, there's always I I certainly agree with you. There's always going to be people who are just donking it off um, in any. Uh, sort of speculation. The, but but the maybe question donking, be- no, but hold up, but hold on. What it, I think I would, I'm, I'm more on your side. Okay. I, I've come a little bit more. If it was a full NFL, like if we did the very simple NFL pick, pick the, pick the win, pick the winners money line or spread or like, and you had to pick all of them. But I think if we get down to uh let's say you have a thousand dollars and this is a little bit more complicated. You have a thousand dollar bankroll that you that you need to make six bets on, and you you could only bet spreads, totals, 
money lines on foot on any of the 14 football games, right? And uh, it's like some like some limited menu. Like there's the fact that there is yes, people like you and me, we could figure out what the the optimal right. We could it's just like DFS, but we're not giving uh, we're giving other people where like. Their lineups can't be all that bad, right? But if you just don't, like, if it was a 14-game pick'em, like, it's more likely that the more people that enter this contest, we had a million people that entered the contest, if even on that line move, if the Chiefs should be 68% owned, maybe they come in at 66. Maybe they come in at 70. Maybe there's a slight offness, and it doesn't cover the rake on all of these things because we're forcing people to pick 14, but what happens if we just say pick six and how much is, is the chiefs winning percentage worth on that ownership by having, and then it becomes some more of like an MMA contest where imagine MMA DFS on a 12 game slate where you have to play a 12 person lineup. Like obviously like we'd all lose to the rake because like you're forcing even the worst player to pick, at least half to half the field, right? And then the first thing you're going to do is go, uh, well, I'm not going to pick any of the fighters opposite one another, right? Because only one could win. And now all of those lineups are going to be duped like there's no tomorrow. And then you're going to go, every, now the field's going to go, well, I'm going to stack the third fight because it's going to be less. Like, eventually it's going to reach equilibrium, but only because we're forcing the whole thing so it's so much easier for people to see, like, what not to do. But when you limit the amount, if you give a more of a menu, a larger player pool, like MLB, you can pick from 300 players, but you can only pick 10 of them, right? You don't have to pick like 600, you know, 200 of them. I think that dynamic, if they size that correctly, where the menu is large enough and the roster is small enough, but not too small, the roster, your card, that I think uh, enough, there's enough variance that is obfusc- that obfuscates optimal strategies that guys like me and you, 10% of the field will be able to make good money off of it. Tw- uh, 20, 30% of the field break even. And the rest are that the rest are slightly losing players. And then 20% of the field are horrible players that, and there's enough variance involved where the, Below average players don't understand how to become better than below average. And the good and the players that are kind of break even and slightly better are not are the people that like intuitively get the concepts, but don't run simulations to be the really people that win these more. It becomes like to me, I think it becomes more like DFS. As far as yeah, the I, ecosystem, I, like how the contest right. works. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I think there's there's different ways you could do it. I mean, obviously there has been a a sports betting sort of championship, and I thought the the format of that was actually interesting, where you're you're not even you're basically just given a bankroll, and it's whoever can run it up the most over, uh, you know, a time period. And I, I think there you obviously have um, more of an ability to express skill or at least uh it's not even so much about betting there it's more about um you know like the game theory about what other people are going to do and when people are going to go bust and making sure you put yourself in a position where you can double up or whatever at the end um so i I think there are different ways of doing it um i don't know dfs has seen 
uh, about zero innovation over the past, whatever, five years. So I, I guess I'm just, I, I wouldn't be holding my breath for these same companies to, to now go all out on uh, redefining how a sports betting can, can be done. But I hope I'm wrong. It sounds fun. And I, I hope I'm wrong about DFS too, because obviously I, I think DFS is a really interesting game. I just worry that, you know, as I was, I didn't play poker. I, I wasn't around for any of that. But my understanding now is that that game is, is mostly solved on computers. Um, and the thing about, but, but can still be well, played. You, well, you haven't played live poker then. <laughs> well, well what, I, what I was going to say, yeah. So my, my understanding is it's mostly solved with computers and, and even the best player would lose to a computer now. But, but live, you could still play. The problem with DFS is it would be like, there's no such thing as live. So like if DFS becomes, you know, gets to, to that point, or it doesn't even have to get to that point, if it gets to that point within 10, 15% so that we're in the, the rake margin, there's just going to be, you know, no real money. And so Do you, okay, because here, there's no the live Here's a question aspect. for you. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm setting you up here. Here's a question okay. for you. Do you think we're at that point? No, I, d- I don't think we're okay, at that okay, point. Okay, okay, that, okay. That, that's all I wanted to know. Your exact, your, your, what you exactly said, people said five years ago. <laughs> like, pe- people said in 2017, like, dude, less good, less bad players, there's less bad life, that more efficient, sound, like, uh, all the points that you were making five years ago, people said, yeah, I don't know if this is going to last five more years. And now it's five years later and I'm going, are we at that point? And you, even I, you're, you're not on camera, but I could see you. Your face was like, no, of course, like almost like shrugged, like, like, no, we're not, we're, we're not near. And that, so how long do you think, uh, do do you think we got at least another five years? I think we got at least another five years, if not 10, maybe 15 years. Well, here's a question. Do you think the number of, of people playing like profitably, like pros has decreased? substantially like from five years ago uh yes but i think there's an external factor in that that that, money that, that money was, better, was better used in other in other facets well isn't that part of the problem if five years from now people's money is, is better used in other facets again i no, mean it, that the, that just means that it's an ecosystem that if 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 more if the best players leave even though they're profitable to go off and do something else, put money into fucking JPEGs or whatever the fuck they're going to do, right? Got to gotta buy crazy apes or, or jungle cats or whatever whatever stupid shit that they're buying. Uh, doesn't that just mean that someone like me just moves up and go, okay, I'll take my, I'll take my 7%, like if I don't mind that? Well, I mean, at least the way I think about it is I view the best players when, when a good player or pro stops playing um, – I, I generally take that as a sign that they don't think there's there's money in that in it for them really anymore. The, the amount of money is worth it, and so you know that could just that could be that they they have lost their edge. But I sort of more view that more likely as they just the rake is too too high for them to realize that edge, and, and they they no longer think it's a, a worthwhile thing. And if they are at that point, and we're losing more like pros. I think everybody else is is probably like I, to me that doesn't mean like oh all their profit they're they're passing off their profits. What that means is they 
are now like break even or losing to the rake and they're passing that off to everybody. No, but I don't think, and, but no, but I don't think that's the case. I, th- I think it's the time investment involved. Cause I've talked, I've talked to, I, I've spoken to several pros, if you want to call them pros that don't play as often as they normally do that they did two or three years ago. And all of them, it's like, and a lot of, and most of them do their own stuff do their own projection. There's like for the time, for the time investment, like they are, pro- they're, they are as profitable. Yeah. Their profit has gone down. Yeah. Games have gotten better. They don't not admit that, but it's like, it's profitable to play and I would make a good amount of money playing it. But, uh, for the amount of, uh, instead of eight to 10 hours a day, I just took all of my money and put it into these NFT projects and, in a month, I tripled my money because it went up and then I dumped and what like, so it's like, why, why, why am I spending eight to 10 hours a day? Like, yeah, I could. Then they'd be like, oh, you, dude, with, with the crypto market that the way that it went down the past month or so, but I see a lot, a lot of people that used to play DFS, like, and didn't play for the past two or three years that much. I see them in contests now. So like, to me that I'm, I'm anecdotally refuting your point that people are leaving because of the rake or lack of edge. It's more of a, like, it's more of the fact of like, do I want to spend eight hours a day grinding this? The same thing for online poker. Like, dude, I could be profitable playing poker, especially live. I could go across the river here in the Caesars, whatever, Horseshoe in Indiana. It's a half an hour drive. I could, those games are easily beatable. Even with the rake, the two, five game even with the rake. The one, two, three hundred game, even with the rake, I could, I could beat that for 15, 20 bucks an hour. No problem. Is 15 or 20 bucks an hour. Like in this day and age, is it that like, dude, would I rather do that or I'd rather wake up and play DFS and make more than that? Right. Or if, if it turns out that like, dude, I'd make more just putting all my money into a, a treasury bond. I mean, like, like it's not that low. But it's like, isn't the goal, at least for me, is to make the most amount of money for the least amount of work. So I like DFS still involves work, just like live poker. You have to be there and see cards. There's a time investment. DFS has much less of a time investment. You don't physically have to be, once you once the lineups are submitted and it locks, you do whatever the fuck you want. You don't have to do anything else. I don't think, I, I think it's more that than people lately. They're either leaving because they're not profitable anymore. That is one. And some, that could be the case. Or they could be profitable, but they just went broke, right? It's one of those things where playing way above their means, no bankroll management, you know, the swings went like this, it went to zero, and they can't play any further. But I think a lot a lot of it is, if I could, if, if you told me I could get a, 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 a 7%, 5 to 7% daily return on an asset where you're just like, I could just give my money to just someone else, and then they just send me checks. But my 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 uh, the concession is I can't play any DFS anymore. Wouldn't I be stupid not to just do that? Uh, so I think that's I think that's more of it than the games that uh, DFS is dead because they'll say that every year someone there's gonna be everywhere DFS is dead. I heard it five years ago, then well, four years I, ago. T- it's every fucking year. To, to actually answer your question, I, I, I won't give a time frame, but w- one of the, the, the sort of, 
I think we touched on it briefly. One of the things that I think will really probably negatively hurt the game would be uh, moving towards some of this this contest sim. Um, I think the game becomes really hard, and and you know I, I'm guessing your counterpoint is that people aren't going to use it. But my counterpoint is that it doesn't really matter the uh, the number of people who who use any of these things. Um, you know, like guy who just plays three lineups a week it doesn't really matter how good or, or bad that person is it, it really matters to people because because such a few uh, such a small group of people are putting in so much of the money um that if if like the general dfs ecosystem the people who are on twitter every day are adopting these tools where they can sort of fool contests in this out and play lineups based on that it's going to be really hard to uh you know, achieve an edge. So I, I mean, maybe I, I was more, uh, I had, you know, all these companies, I mean, all the DFS companies, the buzzword is like simulation and all these companies are trying to do like different SIM products now. And so I, I, I had thought this was a direction that they would, would go in quicker. Um, most are still just sort of at the simulation of, of contest level and not really doing anything, or sorry, simulation of the sporting results level and not really the contest but you know to, to answer your question you, we can check back in when when someone has a product like that out on the the marketplace and and see right, um, well, I, then, then haven't i called i called that the holy grail i said i've i've talked to people i mean i had justin right. freeman he's doing run the sims it's like oh we're, we're simulating we're simulating all the nfl con all the nfl games I go come back to me when you're simulating the Millie Maker, when you're simulating the the play action, yeah. when you get like that's the whole that's what you should be building. Like you build that, and here I'm I'll I'll, st- I'll start signing up right now, and that's I I agree with that point. If that if that becomes the mainstream thing where so many more 150 maxers, like if you I judge a lot of a lot of the contests more by the percentage of 150 maxers for large field. Or the percentage of rate, even if you want to highlight, if you go to the grab, grab some contest files and say, these are the users that you believe are the sharpest and just how many lineups contain those users. So like, even if in a single entry, hundred dollar contest for 500 entries, you're like, well, I'm just going to get all this data and all these users that I believe are profitable and go like, well, 34% of the field are those users versus 48% of the field in this contest. Like, to me, I think that's, I, I would agree. Is that more on your side of like, yeah, the ones and twosies, they're going to come and go, but like it turned down in the NFL season. Like the, what happened in the NFL, in the NFL on DraftKings is that they significantly pared down that slant, $9 slant contest. It used to be 65,000 entries with a 150 max. And they kind of slowly brought that down. They raised the first place payout to make it steeper. And then a lot of times, many weeks, it would be 25,000 entries. But the number of 150 maxers never changed. So it went from a contest that was like 26%, 24%, 150 maxers to a contest that was like 48 to 52%. And at that point, I'm like, I'd much rather have a larger contest with more variance than have half the field be basically lineups that I don't believe I have much of an advantage over of any that like, that's the concept you're talking about more so than, than like, well, if one guy, if this guy, if, if this profitable player quits, that just means that everyone's dead. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, because there's still, going back to the beginning of the conversation we had, even 150 maxers, I think there, there still is a lot of, um, they're still submitting, like, they might be profitable and whole, but they're still submitting a lot of quote unquote negative EV lineups mm -hmm. because they, you know, without true sort of like simulation based stuff. And you're talking it, about MMA, hard. you're talking about MMA primarily. I've only looked at this for MMA. I'm okay. guessing that that is probably true in all sports though. I, I think it's probably very unlikely that, I think it's probably pretty rare that someone can submit a 150 so, so, positive so EV lineups. Tell me the details of the MMA. So, what I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying for you to explain it to the general audience on mm -hmm. how could someone be profitable with 150 lineups, even though you're saying that like the, the common discourse is that they're good players enter 150 plus EV lineups. And what you're saying is based on what you're seeing is that the people that enter 150 lineups are not profitable because they're entering 150 plus EV lineups they're entering like a select 10 or 20 really profitable lineups amongst a bunch of break even lineups and then a bunch of really negative EV lineups that it's their propensity to find the really good ones to do so and my follow up question to the question that you have not answered yet is uh is is there a way to find out what those 10 or 20 are and just play those yeah, if I if I if that was the case, then I would I would you not be one me. of the ones you who. Are, tell me I, that. Well, no, no, I, I well I wouldn't tell you, but I also wouldn't be. Uh, I would I would have called out myself as the only one who cannot uh, submit negative EV lineups. But even this this really proves my point of, you know, obviously my my EV calculations are heavily biased towards me because that's what my simulations are based on. And so hopefully I can simulate, you know, and generate the highest EV in your own simulations. That, that is, uh, you know, if you're not doing that, there's, there's probably something wrong, but that doesn't, that obviously doesn't mean that's a case because your, your Sims are going to be biased towards you. But even my lineups, um, you know, I'm submitting uh, roughly a third usually are, are negative EV sort of post hoc. Uh, I think the general, I've seen that the, the top, 10 people who are usually EV, um, and that obviously changes contest to contest. They're usually around somewhere between 60 and 70 positive EV lineups. This is for MMA out of 150, um, according to my Sims. Uh, but but they're you know they could be several hundred dollars in, in EV. So what what that means is that, yeah exactly what you said. They they're submitting probably 70 or so lineups, 80 lineups that are marginally negative EV. Um, you know and that's because of the rake and, and all that, and just the, the lineups they select. But then they have, you know, um, you know, maybe half or so that are positive EV. And of those half, some are like very, very positive. So, uh, you know, if the entry is $15, you might have a handful that are 40, 50, 60. I think the highest EV I, I had in this most recent contest was a lineup that was worth like $95 in profit. So, you know, that's, that's like 6X. Um, you know, the entry fee. So that, that's obviously a very good one. Now, the, the problem is, is how you, your question, how you identify those. So, you know, obviously it's very dependent on the, the win probability of the lineup and how unique it is. But even beyond that, um, it's, and this is why, you know, like why it's hard to optimize just based on a, a contest sim is because 
you can you can submit unique lineups and they, they can be unique, but you know actually a, a lineup that's duped four times might be better if there's not another there's not other lineups that sort of look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you could have a unique lineup, but you know share share five fighters with uh, a thousand other lineups, or you could have a lineup that's duped four times in an extreme, maybe only share five fighters with like 10 other lineups. Right. And so that matters a lot and why it's more complicated than just um, looking at uniques and why like um, it, it's not, that, that's where like but a, also, a but contest. it's also win probability. I mean, I could build a unique lineup by playing the six biggest underdogs. Most oh, likely right. yeah, people absolutely. are not going to leave 8,000 on the table and play a 42K lineup. But the likelihood of, of them being the six highest scorers are on the slate, I mean, are just so low but Mm -hmm. people go okay that makes sense and then i go like i pondered on average i mean i i I question this uh on uh the past episode or something or on one of the shows that on average i'm not i'm not saying on specific slates but on average uh because i think you showed on twitter some distribution of salary that i conceptually intuitively Assuming that the pricing is efficient to some extent, obviously it's based more on the money line odds than on the actual, can they score a lot of points probability uh, that the most valuable lineup seem to me should be ones that spend the most salary that are unique. Like if you could find 50 K lineups that are unique, 49, nine lineups that are unique, there are much less, there are way few of them that on average, if you were to take, and didn't even count the fighters who on the slate, any type of anything, and just simulated out 52 weeks worth of whatever MMA, con- 100 MMA contests, different ones, not just the same one, that on average, that the lineups that are higher salary, that are more unique, are more profitable. Yeah, absolutely. The one caveat I'd put is there's a lot of people who seem to do that, but stack fights, so I would not uh, right. recommend that for the most part. Um, but... Yeah, I think like as a general rule of thumb, if you're if you're not going to build your own projections or simulate out any of these like win probabilities, the, the general advice I would give to anybody would be try and build lineups that are forty nine five around or higher, maybe even down to forty nine two. It, it, see, this all depends very much on a slate right. somewhere in there, and then um, aim to have it be duplicated less than about five times. Right. And I think it's. At worst, you're you're, you're, you're highlighting exactly what I aim for. Exactly, you're right. So I mean, there's the the thing about that is again, there's there's certainly ones in there that are are much better. Um, but you know, a, a, the crude sort of way of doing that would be, I think you you can't go super wrong. There there's certainly some negative ones in there as well. Um, and that goes to, yeah, the point I was making just about, again, it, it's not just this lineup itself is unique. It's important how it would fit into other lineups that look close to it because you're, you're going to, I mean, it's no different than other sports. Um, but I think in, in some of the, the sports where you're so focused on unique, this, this point could get, gets a little bit ignored is that, um, yeah, lineup that's, that's duped a couple times, but doesn't have lineups that are similar to it is, is probably better than a lineup that is, is unique and has, tons of things that are very similar with just maybe like one-offs because then you're, you're competing against a lot more and, and fading a lot more things. So 
Um, we, and we that's see that, that's we what, see that in NFL Showdown a lot. A lot of there, a, a lot of slates in NFL Showdown, the winning lineup will be a solo lineup that you look at and go, that doesn't look that crazy, and it'll be like a forty-eight-seven lineup, and it'll be it's like and. There's there's like an eight percent owned guy in it, so it's not like a one percent owned anything. You look at it and you go, yeah, probably most people didn't play these two. To, like, and you just look and you go, yeah, individually this doesn't look crazy, but from a standpoint of once you import all the rest, when you download all their lineups and you run a correlation of players to each other, it's just that like these combination of like these four players are just so like don't. Just so happened that those four, probably due to people jamming in correlation, it's like, like a lot of people if they play the wide receiver and the captain, they they play the quarterback also. So like a lot of lineups are going to share that. So maybe you're playing a what like these combinations that don't exist as much, and when they and those are the six highest scoring players on the slate, like you win solo even though your ownership product, right, actually doesn't look great. Because just the combination of players, rather than what a lot of people do is go, I'm going to play this lineup that makes sense and take out one guy and put in like like the sixth wide receiver that's going to be 0.9% owned. And it's like, that that may be a fun, that may be a unique lineup also. Maybe it's duped twice. Maybe, maybe it is. But that's highly reliant on like, like you're competing against 2,800 other lineups practically. And it's all going to be dependent on if that one guy does well compared to those on whether or not you get first or you get 2,800th. While that other lineup with like a 4v4 off of so many other combinations, like that that 1% own guy doesn't even, like if he puts up seven points, may not even fucking matter. Like against all those other lineups because they're we get back to the very beginning of the correlation between the line, the, that you're losing, the more your lineups look like other lineups, the more equity you lose in a progressively paid out contest. Yeah, and and, and that really hits on the, the challenge of predicting duplicates um, because you can take product ownership, multiply it by, you know, the number of entries in a contest and get something okay. But the, the problem is, is the correlation between ownership. We talked about in the beginning, sort of like the correlation between, between fighters or, or whatever in optimal rates. But there's also a ton of correlation between fighters in that, you know, like uh, highest fi- price fighter might be 50%, lowest price fighter might be 10%. So you'll say, oh, those together, 5% of lineups. But really, like, it's probably 10% because probably everyone who has the lowest price fighter probably has, you know, the highest price fighter too. So, um, you know, understanding that is is important in in getting the number of duplicates and it's so sensitive uh like to to these things like when you're predicting duplicates that the decision and the profitability of having a lineup that is um you know duped twice versus five times makes a a huge difference in the ev and so um you know if you're if you're not accounting for that in some way or trying to uh you know it just makes a really, really big difference, which is is part of the challenge of, of of these these uh, heavily duped sports. Well, what what would you say to Brian Jester, who always comes up, apparently does really well in MMA, but in in your sims, he's horrible. 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. I mean, I don't. I certainly don't take my Sims as gospel. I've been I've been doing them. I've only been playing uh, for about two months or so. Um, but it, it's interesting looking at the the like where people's profitability comes in my Sims. I mean, I, I feel pretty good about them because the the list of most profitable players typically is a list of of people that um, it's not surprising. You know, a lot of pros and um, I often have a lot of um, the Osimo guys or stochastic, I guess now uh, at the top of the list. Uh, you're generally uh, up there in the in the top top part. Um, so it's not like I, I'm identifying, um, you know, a bunch of randoms as the most profitable people. So that that's one way I feel okay about it. Um, it'd be interesting to to compare with with because because really the 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 way I think the best way you know you're playing well is if you your lineups are looking good in someone else's Sims. Um, but what is, what is interesting is at the, always at the bottom of the list too, is a bunch of uh, pros too. And it's, it's generally the people who I would say play uh, really the most focused on uniques. And I think there are some um, things that I'm not capturing. Uh, so, so two things come to mind. And I think these are two things that it, I think that, uh, that Brian uh, focuses on is um, the uh, he uses actual like you know fighter tendencies? So my sim doesn't. Right, he doesn't. Well, I, uh, I, I was gonna say I like. I think the biggest the biggest flaw because I, I I've I've talked to Brian before. I've talked to other people as well. I think in general, MMA sims across the industry by most people is is done incorrectly. I think, I, I think they're, they're fun. I think they're fundamentally, they're not, it's not like they're done incorrectly based on the data that you have. I think they're fundamentally flawed based on the data that you have. I'm, I'm interested to hear how they're fundamentally wrong just because I'm not taking into account, you know, like a, a grappler versus a boxer. Or? No, I think, I think there's not enough data for the context. Well, so I, I, I don't think, think I don't think I, there's I don't think there's any way I I think it's funda it, there's fundamentally no way to regress the any I, I I'm talking about yeah. in gen like take the fighter that has the most amount of fights and I'll tell you that he's still about 14 lifetimes before having any useful data like I just think that the date you on a three round fights with they fight twice he, I just think that f fights that are five years apart from each other it to me I view it more uh, MMA fight data as like BVP in baseball of like, well, this, this guy hit two home runs and seven at bats off of this pitcher over the course of 10 years. Uh, is he going to hit a home run to like, like dude, that could, it could be right. 0 for seven. He could be two for like, I just think that using almost any of that has such a high error rate that if you're going to, if you're going to build like Sims based on that, that I can't, how could they possibly be accurate? Well, so to uh, to clarify, I, uh, I, I totally, I agree with your sentiment, and this is why I don't use any uh, like individual fighter statistics. So, like I, I, when I first started building this, I thought I will. Let's say I'm trying to model how many strikes a person's going to have in a round. You know, the first thing you would, you generally think to do that is look at how many strikes this person has per round, how many strikes the other person has or something, and use use some sort of historical data. But the problem you're describing is exactly right. Like, it's such small sample sizes for any individual fighter um, and over such a long time frame. And there's, 
you know, I'm not an expert on MMA, but it could seem to really be dependent on fighter strategy and stuff. So I, I didn't want to use anything. I knew whatever I would model with the fighter specific stats would just be noise. Um, and so what, what I do is I just use, uh, just, just use the, the gender and the weight class to model these things. So it's very, um, so it is credible at that level. Um, there's very minor differences between um, different weight classes strike at different rates and different genders strike at different rates. And that's true of, you know, takedowns, knockdowns, all that sort of stuff. So that's how I've, at least I've gotten around the sample size issue. Now, one of the obvious problems with that is I'm not saying that there's no way of predicting like this person's going to be more likely to take someone down than this person. I think you certainly could do that. Um, and I think that's my understanding is that's a big part of like a Brian's strategy. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, that's, that would seem really hard to, to be predictive um, in any sort of way. Uh, but, you know, if you, you know, grind tape or whatever, I'm sure there, there is a value add there. But to answer your question, I, I don't think that, that fundamentally like is, is incorrect then because I'm just using very large samples of saying, you know, like on average heavyweights, you know, strike this much and then I'm, I'm randomly using a regression to do that and then randomly sampling from how I think those are distributed. So. Right. And I, and I think that from, from a, like if you, if everyone was equal, that would be the correct way to do it, but everyone isn't equal. So like it, to me, to me, uh, what I've found, cause I've looked into this a lot more and of course I don't have the background that you have. So what I do is way more rudimentary and not necessarily the most precise is that, uh, I've, I've, I've found that the betting markets are more, it's, it's, it's what I'm trying to do and I, what I've tried to analyze. And I did this a year ago, right? And I do it every like three months or so, because it takes me God knows how long to do everything. Cause I do everything manually. Cause I have to cut and paste. I don't have, I don't have fucking fancy processes. Uh, is that essentially I don't care about any any outcomes that don't involve ascent to at the beginning point. I didn't care about any outcomes that that did not involve finishes. So, because in MMA DFS, we're not looking. I don't care about medians. I don't care about any of that. So it's like, what happens if I don't even bother trying to simulate or even predict average outcomes? All I want to do is predict hundred plus. I want to pre- predict finishes because I don't know how they're going to finish. Is it going to be a KO? I have no fucking clue. But for instance, like using the extreme example, like I always start from the extremes, uh, round one finish. What's the, what's the, the R squared to, uh, to 90 points. It's obviously one, right? Cause you get 90 points in DK for a first. So it's like, okay. So like how efficient are the first round, odds closing lines on all the fighters and it's like well however close they are to that like they gotta score 90 points i mean like they have to score 90 percent how often do fighters no matter what their style no matter whatever whether or not they're an underdog i mean even though they're probably not what's what's that correlation to 90 point to 90 points based on the and how efficient are the lines and i found absurdly efficient in the grand scheme of things so it's like, okay, I got a starting point. Now do 100-point scores. So now I'm taking all the DraftKings data. I'm taking all the 
Just, I just want to see what are the closing lines, what are the, what are the first round, that, that's it, nothing else. And first round finishes to 100 points, extremely correlative, right? Because most likely, I mean, some people get early finishes and they get no take. It's a, they pull guard and it's a 92 points or they don't get credited for the knockdown. They only get 98. But a lot of times, especially on knockouts, right, you're going to get knocked down, you get 100 plus points. So it's like, if I could start from there and then go, well, I don't care about an 80 point. Like I, I'm not trying to predict what an 80 point score. I don't care because it doesn't matter to me in DFS. So I'm not trying to simulate any type of outcome like that. So then once you, once you do the closing lines to, to all of that, and that's so much more correlative than any fight data I've ever pulled to try to predict the number of strikes. Like it's just that, the range of outcomes is just so wide for that. On do I expect them to how many strikes? What's the takedown defense? All of that type of stuff. Predicting. I tried to think of well, how many takedowns will someone attempt? Well, let's try to figure out at the like what you did at the weight class. At what's the average? Then you then you start going to comparable fighters. So then you go like because it's very similar to to remarketing on on for cause I did digital marketing. So a lot of this type of stuff I'm used to. Like, I need to market to a bigger audience, but I want to take this subset of an audience and go, I want, what do they share? So now I can advertise to 50,000 more people that share those same things. So I went to the fight, similar fighters, but that wasn't, like, nothing was more anywhere close to the inside the distance and the, and the round one finishing lines. So it's like, the more and more I'm looking at all this data, the more and more it comes back to that, that point of, like, why am I even bothering with any of this when... I do not have to project if a $7,600 fighter scores 53 points. Like, it's an irrelevant score to me. Maybe, yes, sometimes that will be in the optimal lineup because of weird shit happens on a, on a slate. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that error rate of just, like, getting rid of those results and not having them in my, in my sphere of, like, what could be optimal. And then just going through all of that, the only thing I had to adjust for was, uh, like, uh, a projection because how they finish matters also. So like for a hundred point scores, yes, there is uh, my blind spot after doing that was well in a three round decision and the five round fighters were the ones that scored horribly because like a five round decision, Max Holloway, 147 points, but didn't get a finish. So like it would show that he's horrible. And it's like, okay, how do I adjust for that? And then you just, uh, to me, uh, you could you could do a round score like an average per for weight class like just like you did an average per round and then classify fighters and just and I'm I'm essentially just giving them an, a, a static modifier so I'm treating like a grappler at 185 is going to get X amount of points per round on average compared to X whatever on the and but and then everything else is based on betting lines. So like doing that, that I got much more accuracy. And then Brian on, on Occupy Fantasy has kind of a metric that is doing something I believe is more advanced, but similar to what I'm doing to some extent, kind of removing, like, I don't care. I care only about like the top 10 and bottom 10 percentile outcomes and then just simulating like kind of that. And then what are the relative differences between fighters? And then like, but in doing through all of that, like I know that other people are trying to simulate the actual fucking fights. And I'm like, 
based on the just looking at the DraftKings scores, I know it's what five years, five and a half years, six years worth of data. So that's still kind of small sample enough. But in looking at that, I'm like, I don't see how the fight, how you could possibly model the fight data to be better than just the closing lines and some type of round modifier. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I'm certainly using the lines to to model the outcome of the fight. Um, that's like the, the basis of the of of who wins and when they win is is using uh you know the the lines for that because I certainly if I could model that better than uh, the lines I wouldn't be playing DFS I would be betting betting, uh, right. betting on all that so um, I certainly use use that for for that aspect really the only the only thing I use the fight data for is is the underlying um, sort of statistics like strikes and takedowns and all that and I. I generally agree with your premise. I think you could actually do, I had a tweet thread a while back about exactly how the, the MMA sim worked. And one of the things I said is, you know, most people, it, it's not worth it. Honestly, you know, in hindsight, it it, it doesn't add a ton of value, um, the, the modeling for some of those statistics. I mean, it's really random, as you've probably seen. There's a ton of randomness there and how much they're going to get per round. And so... I probably gain maybe a little bit of value just by modeling it by weight class and, and doing that. But in reality, you, you could probably just, uh, I don't remember the exact range, but you could basically do what you were doing is just select a, a random sort of average. And then if you want to add randomness to that, you know, like in a, in a sim sort of way, like, you know, uh, what, what that could vary by. I mean, I think the, the one thing I would say is, is, you know, there's nothing, and I, I know you know this, there's nothing magical about a hundred points, right? So right. like there, there's plenty of ways you can win the slate, not getting a hundred points from it, you know, a fighter. And there's right. plenty of ways you could even lose having, you know, all a hundred. So depending on the, the size of the slate. So, um, you know, that's the one thing that, again, you, you're, you're always going to, it's unsurprising, but you're always going to be missing something when you, uh, go a more sort of, uh, rudimentary way, but, um, honestly, I think you could you could do probably ninety percent of what I do just using the the fight data and and you know building out a bunch of rows in Excel and and having a bunch of outcomes and then seeing how often people are like you know at least optimal rates or whatever um, pretty easily just using using betting odds. Right, I mean that's pretty much what I do. Well, I'm I'm adding something else I've been looking into to make that a little bit better. Because uh, I, I I just try I try to think intuitively I try to think conceptually and it's like I don't know how to necessarily achieve it and I will spend eight hours trying to do so and then fuck up some fucking syntax and it every I get div div zero is my friend. Uh, uh, I know you were, you were talking why why do all this work to sim out MMA? It sounds like your process took ten x the time it took. Well, took only because of only because of the horrible at Excel. That's. <laughs> That's that's that that's the reason. It's not anything else other than that. I'm not. I I just like. Uh, how do I do this? Let me Google it. Oh, okay, that seems good. Why doesn't it work though? Oh, because I need to add this. Oh, I need to. And I'll do things. I'll have things on. I have seven sheets. Why do I need this on all these sheets? And then I have something. Then I cut and paste. And uh, who knows? And I save it wrong. And then it's like, oh, I don't have the original version. And now I have to go. Oh, it's it's. I'm horrible at Excel. Uh no, I, I contextually, like we, with the the averages, I think 
uh, and I talked to someone about this a couple of days ago, uh, adjusting for betting lines when it comes to the fight data. Because uh, I'm not, because I, I looked, I looked to it, I did, I did this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it makes, because it, it, intuitively it made no sense to me. Why am I weighing? It, I didn't know. It came down, it was, it was, it was, it was fucking Romanoff. It was that Romanoff fight where it was minus 2,500. Of course, the fight got scrapped after lock and everyone went nuts. Uh, and I said, why am I giving him this, like, if, if it was Al, it was Romanoff versus who, Chase Sherman, right? He was up against Chase Sherman. Let's say it was, instead of Romanoff, it was Alex Bordeaux, Alan Bordeaux, and it was a pick'em fight. Like, why would I be giving him the same amount of points per round as someone who is that dramatically, like the extreme of like, if you're a minus 2,500 favorite and a minus 275 to finish inside the first round, like, dude, this guy is going to fucking kill the other guy. Like, why wouldn't I be, why am I only giving him X points for, why shouldn't I be giving him twice as many points? Like, if he if he kills him and he doesn't get a finish, this guy could score 140 points. Like, legitimately, you're thinking, what is Romanov going to do? Take him down and ground about him until he submits, until he, till the referee stops the fight. And this could happen three rounds in a row, and he could score 150 points in three rounds. Why am I assigning him the same amount of points as the average for that? So why shouldn't I be adjusting for, like, the hot, bigger a favorite, the more points per round for that average or whatever, and the lower, the like... Like, why aren't I adjusting even that for just the betting? If I believe that, if we both believe that the betting lines are efficient enough to use in our models, shouldn't be, we also be using that to, to as a descriptive factor for the for the the fight simulation outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, they're they're probably the, the, the thing about that is you you really only know how much you should be adjusting if you you know regress or something of every you know one percent and win expectation is worth how many more in strikes or control time or, or what have you. So, um, yeah, certainly that is, uh, that is something that, uh, I think would add predictive power, uh, you know, beyond just like weight classes. Um, there's something I play a lot of, uh, league of legends DFS. Actually, I, I made the wrong decision in the pandemic. I, I decided to build like this, this full league of legends model. And uh, clearly there's, there's more money in MMA, so made the wrong decision there. But there's there's a similar um, phenomenon that I you know you, you take into account there is that when teams are very favored over another team, the amount of um, kills doesn't follow like the same. The the higher favored, obviously, the less kills the loser is is going to get, and that might sound intuitive, but the kills are are very random in League of Legends, and so. Um, it's predictive um, beyond just like, you know, the winner is going to have X kills and loser has Y kills. It's the, the odds itself is predictive beyond that. Okay. I was just, I was suggesting something to improve your, your mind. I want to get it to the point where you're the, the, here's the whole goal. Dean, Dean. Uh, I want to get your model good enough to show that Brian Jester is profitable. Oh man, that's going to be, <laughs> He's gonna have to win for like a year straight, and I'll still have him as negative. <laughs> I thought he, I thought he won the other day, and I was. No, he, I was, he, was uh, he was holding on for first until uh, Gamrod put up 108 points. 
Uh, but it was a three-way tie. It was embarrassing for him. It was a it was a three-way tie. So he, he really should have been embarrassed by that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I didn't I didn't know if I could I could come on this podcast if if he won again, and I'm still showing him as negative. So um, I don't know. I hope I I hope I can. I mean, I think that the two things that he's probably incorporate. Well, I know that you know without without me incorporating, uh, you know, like uh, the actual. St- strategies like if is this because i think I, i'm still pretty new to it but my understanding is like the grapplers generally score much much more they have higher um, ceilings the, yeah right so without incorporating any of that you know my stuff is going to be biased towards um strikers probably and and say that um grapplers or whatever are, are less optimal than they really are um so I don't really know the other the other but that, thing. That's a big uh, thing, to, dude. That's a big because that's what happened to me when I when I. It's like why like Marab is plus three seventy five inside the distance. He's ninety three hundred. He's the worst projected fighter on the slate. Like that's obviously wrong. He's gonna get sixteen takedowns. Like, like, so you can't just go because the betting line will show that yeah you're right. He's most likely not gonna finish the fight, but he's gonna just dismember the other person and be on top of him and take him down 16 times. So, like, for DraftKings purposes, you almost don't want him to finish early. You, you, you're you're hoping that what past the first-minute mark that he doesn't finish early because you, know, you don't just want one takedown and a submission from him. You want him to just ragdoll him a bunch of times. So once I saw that, I'm like, dude, I'm getting too much, like, Al-Razak Kazan and all these KO artists because yeah, but their ceilings are like first round or bust. If, unless they get a knockout early, they're dead. But these grapplers, they could score 120 in a decision. Like you have to adjust for that. And I think that's a very, I think that's very big. And I think if if even if you just incorporated that more, like I think that will be more accurate. Yeah, I mean t- to be clear, when I'm when I'm I, I'm aware of so there's like two parts of of any sort of model. I, you should you should intervene if, if you are aware of its shortcomings, right? So like I, I'm aware of this, and so when I when I play myself, um, you know I I try and account for this in different ways. Um, it's just the the challenge is um, I don't necessarily have a great way to model this without uh, that's not manual. Like I said, the ideal way would be is if I could um, you know cluster fighters together to to categorize them uh, maybe, maybe it could be even as simple as you know wrestler or non-wrestler because um, that would probably add a lot of predictive power but th- the other component is like it's not even as simpler simple i don't think um as like oh there's a wrestler he's going to um you know have a lot of takedowns it, it it probably is more complex analysis of like um the opponent and who's favored and who's going to sort of dictate the pace of the fight and all that and the reality is, I, I think there is probably like a a sizable edge if you're willing to to do that stuff, like watch fights and learn the fighters. Uh, you know, at this point in my life, uh, I don't. You know, I you, even if you max enter, you know, each week that's a couple thousand dollars. There's just to me that's not necessarily worth uh, my time to be like grinding. Um, you know, tape on on fighters and stuff. But I, you know, if this is is what you do and. Um, you know, you play a lot of MMA and you're into it. Um, I, I'm certain that, you know, I, I, I mean, I brought it up that that's a, clearly a huge um, hole in any any sort of profit calculation. Now, is it enough to go from, you know, bottom of the list to top? 
I don't probably think so, um, but I don't actually know that. It goes back to what I've said this this whole time. Unless you actually sort of quantify it, you don't actually really know. You're just guessing. Um, so maybe it is, uh, maybe it's not. But um, you know, what, whatever I'm I'm doing, I feel at least pretty comfortable with it. That it's not a huge uh, red flag or hole. Um, just because, again, the the names at the top of the list. Um, I, I feel pretty good about who's generally there. So I know I'm not at the top. You're, you're usually, you're not at the very top, but you're usually, because um, this is another component of it. You, oh, I was going to say is you're usually, uh, you know, maybe one scroll down. Um, I think you've been profitable, at least on, on every one I looked. Um, the, the other component about it, which, which should be mentioned is, when I look at that, I'm just looking at like ex- expected return. Um, but what that doesn't take into account at all is, is variance. So um, there are ways you can play to, to maximize expected return, I think, and this is true of probably every sport, but your, your, your variance is going to be very high. Um, for example, on this past slate, um, well, you could, you could like jam basically one fighter um, who's you know, gonna be in a ton of uh, low owned optimals, you know, around 50K or whatever. But then if they lose, you know, like your, your right, entire, right, right. exactly. So there's, there's different ways you, you can play, um, you know, to, you know, obviously it's a very variant game DFS. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, what, what matters is not ROI. It matters like how much money you make. And so if you're able to get more money down because you're playing less of, you know, uh, less variant and you're reducing your risk of ruin or whatever, if you have a set bankroll, um, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I, I don't think, you know, making 1% on a million dollars is better, better than making 10% on a thousand dollars or whatever. So, um, you know, there is something to be said about reducing, reducing variance. And I, I think I haven't, you know, in depth studied your lineups, but I, I do know you play a little bit more. I think you play a little bit more balanced such that you're not just like jamming in, um, you know, a bunch of lineups with one person, even if those are like, at least to my Sims, like the highest EV seems right. like you're playing a, a bit more of a balanced approach. And I think well, even I'm, in I'm some, a, the... I'm, I'm less balanced than, than at some, at times, but I mean, I'm typically not playing anyone in like more than half my lineups or something. I mean, like, like sometimes I, sometimes I go overboard. Sometimes I go over like, okay, there's a 90, there's a nine K guy. That's going to be 10% owned. And maybe I'll have them in 35% of my lineups, but I'm not like not 85%. I mean, like, I'm not like the, Sometimes I will be way over or way under. Like this past slate, I think I only had like 12% Armand Sarukian when he's like 47% owned. So I'm like, if this dude smashes, I'm going to be in trouble. I'll have some lineups. But I didn't mind taking that stance on that specific slate. But like, I'm never locking people. I don't lock people in or X people out. I mean, I even had Nate Manesson do lineups out of 100. So it's like, like yes, I I I'm a bit more balanced than because I know who you talk. I know players that you're talking about that you look at their lineups and be like, yep, they pretty much are playing these three fighters and then every possible combination. That like you know they're playing 98 percent of this guy, 90 percent of that guy, and 87 percent of this guy, and then everything else is kind of like whatever. And it's like, well, if those three got that, they don't mind either you know losing 2250 practically or minus 95 percent or possibly come in solo first, solo second, tied for third. Like then 
Like, so over the average, their ROI could be X. My ROI could be the same exact X, but I would have, my, my profit graph would look like this, and theirs would be like long periods of down, down, ups, and like, even though it's the same ROI. Well, certainly if it's the same ROI, you would want to, you know, holding ROI constant, you want to play like a less variant strategy. Um, you know, so I think, you know, there's usually a, yeah, there's, there's a good mix in MMA, honestly, of, of who at least I think are, you know, some of the top players of playing. Who do you think? Very... Some of the, you got you to say, you, you have no face and no name. You could say whatever you want. Who, who do you think are some <laughs> of the top MMA uh, large field uh, players on DraftKings? Um. I think I, I mentioned briefly, and again, it's it's based on my sims, which we've we've talked about aren't perfect, but some of the, the people who consistently, um, most of the people who consistently come up at the top are uh, tangentially related to Stochastic or Osimo. Um, they, I think uh, Osimo himself was, was pretty high up there. Um, I don't know any of these people, but Sean Zahn is consistently up there. Um, I saw... Uh, Need Lunch Money, who I think was just recently on a podcast, is yeah. is up there. Um, a lot of time. What's interesting, one of the things I, I found is interesting is um, this this the group of people that I think are affiliated with like Saber Sim. They usually. What's funny is you usually see like come like like people who are affiliated with different tout sites all clustered together in a in a certain spot. Um, what's interesting about Saber Sim I found is that. Some of the people are at the top and some of the people are like all the way at the bottom. So <laughs> I don't know if people are just using those tools differently. Well, wait, wait, implementing... I'm assuming you have Reform Racer up there. Yeah, he's he was uh, at least the past slate. He was he was near the top. Yes. But I think, um, Gi so... I think Giant Squid does does his own stuff. OK, he's yeah. Affiliated he was, he's affiliated with Sabersim, but like who knows what I mean? I, I he uses their stuff and he's part of their but he. He does his, He has his own. He has his own For stuff on the yeah. side. So like, that, I mean, that may be different. Based, yeah, I mean, based on how this is going, you might want to be on the bottom of my list anyway. Uh, right, with, right. Near, near Brian Jester. So take <laughs> or, this. No, no, actually, actually, maybe the better part is to either be at the top or the bottom, but the middle is horrible. That's probably true. I mean, there, there honestly probably is some, some truth in that. That the middle is like. I'm in the middle work. though, but I'm in the middle. <laughs> but, no, you're, you're, you're not in the middle. You're, you're. I, there's, there's a small group that is. Well, it's obviously like a small percentage that I would, I would sim as profitable, um, each slate, and, um, you know, I think to consistently be in there, if, if you have any faith in it, uh, I think is, is probably a good thing. I think, the ones that. To me, I, I question the legitimacy when I see people who won 50 max and have been successful DFS players for a long time um, at the bottom. I mean, I, I think we know there's a couple things that are probably impacting that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of the middle players are people who are just sort of like playing too duped of lineups and slowly bleeding out because those lineups, they're not like hugely negative EV, um, like a dupe lineup. They're just like solidly negative EV. It's not like you're losing your entire entry. Because um, the other thing I'll say about the, the bottom of the list that I don't take into account is, and I didn't think I needed to, but now I'm wondering, is like I don't take into account um, canceled fights. And I think, um, and I think uh, Brian yeah, won, Brian on, won on, the, of, on the slate where they exactly. the canceled And so you might, you might be like, my original thought is like, oh, cancellations are 
uniformly distributed. You don't need to build anything in for that. But the reality is, is, is if you add like, I don't know what the estimate would, would be, but even a small estimate of a canceled fight for each fighter, um, and you're someone who's playing low, really low owned stuff, when a 50, 40% guy gets canceled and you're playing like really weird lineups, that's, that's really important. Um, the other thing is, I think he won on like a guy getting his eye poked out or right, something. Mike Jackson, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like that is another thing I don't take into account. So, yeah, I mean, what I'll say about that is like to the extent you're you're truly playing for these sort of black swan or wild events. Um, but that is, know, but they, that is what Brian does, dude. He he won the Billy in, in the Super Bowl the same way. Like that, his I mean, mm -hmm. he, that's his his outward strategy is that in in showdowns and. All those types of things is that his aim is to build 150 black swan lineups. I mean, like his right. lineups are, I wouldn't say nuts, but like it's very, if, if, if the NFL game has a total of 57, he's building lineups as if it's going to only score like, it's going to be like 10 to three, right? Like yeah, what is I, optimal I think... in those situations while almost everyone else is building for everything else and then vice versa. And then in games where it's like defense is 30% owned He's playing shootout lineups, five ones, and some teams are going to score 49 points. And he knows that most lights are minus 95% doing that. But if you win it, if you win enough times, then you're profitable. So like, I think that may, yeah. maybe that's one of the main keys of why your blind spot is that like those, it's those events. Yeah, right. I mean, the reality is those probably happen more often than, than people think, and, and they, they don't happen enough that you would, most people think to model them. Um, but yeah, those those sort of one-off things, um, they happen, and, and they can make a, I mean, this whole conversation, we've talked about how, you know, very minor changes can cause huge impacts in, in the calculation of EV. So, you know, if, if you know, 50% fighter gets... Um, scratch like even two percent of time he's gonna have a lineup like we were talking about that looks like nothing like anybody else's for the most part yeah. um it not only is unique but it doesn't even really look like other people's and so there's huge huge equity in that so yeah i mean i i think there's there's probably some of that going on coupled with you know the fight data um or, or the fighter specific like what they want to do in the ring um but overall i mean it, mma is not that complicated beyond that stuff of a, of a sport to sim. So, um, you know, I feel pretty comfortable with what I have and, and feel some reassurance that consistent names who I, I believe to be winning players are, are consistently at the top. Right. Because if it was completely off, you would see a bunch of people that play a one lineup, two lineup, like, and all these 150 maxers at the bot. Like if you saw that, you'd know that like no one could survive that. Like just realistically, like with, they can't drop 90% every slit. I mean, like it has to be right. It's, it's your, your, your Occam's razor. Like the fact that you're getting so many quote unquote, 150 max or pros or at least hundred or whatever names that you recognize up there that the Sims have to be right. And the fact that some aren't, but it could be the opposite. But see, the thing is Occam's <laughs> razor could be the opposite that, because you're doing something similar that all the other, it's that bias of like, of course your lineups will come up the highest. So anyone that's playing your type of Sims 
will come up the highest. And the ones that are at the, if you find that there's eight 150 maxes on the bottom, it could be that it's the opposite and they're the most profitable because they're doing something that's completely different from you. And that's the reason why they are profitable. Or it could be a mix of both that there's a, there's a balance on certain slates and certain types. One will be, and one won't be. like, like there has to be a reason. Like I, there has to be a reason why, why, why Brian Jester comes at the bottom of your Sims and come up, comes in the bottom of a lot, a couple of people that I've, that I've spoken to Sims, but theoretically from, from a conceptual standpoint, I agree with this strategy. I agree. Uh, other than the fact that the only thing I disagree with Brian on is that the context of the slate matters as far as unique. Like I I'm big on the, like that, that whole on average, you want to play the highest salaried, highest salaried unique lineups, less duplicated lineups. So I'm more likely to build 49-7 lineups, 49-6 lineups that I think will be duped two or three times, maybe unique. And he's more likely to go, what's the best way for me to get 150 uniques? Let me build lineups with an average salary of 48-7. And then there are certain slates where I look at and go, this is not the type of slate where that type of lineup has an outsized chance. The types of slates that have outsized chances are when like the most expensive fighters, 9,400 and only like a minus 185 favorite. Like when they, like even the most expensive, the high biggest favorite isn't even that big of a favorite. Like it's like, okay, so many pick em fights. Yeah, the optimal lineup could have like leave 3,000 on the table. But when you have certain slates where like, even when you get down to the $8,400 range, you're at minus 285 or something. That's an extreme example. It's like, now this is a slate where in most likelihood, one, maybe two underdogs win. And then it's just a battle of who has the, the highest four or five scoring favorites. And then when I see people building lineups that leave 1,500 on the table for those slates, I go, yeah, I guess that, that those are the black swan events. And it's like, I'm going to build the lineups that aren't that. Good luck on those. That's not going to happen often enough. I don't think those lineups are profitable, actually. Yeah, I mean, and I think another component of it uh, with the sim is, you know, most people, and you should be building to to be to come in first in any of these top heavy contests but the reality is like over a long term uh over any sort of long sample size a lot of your equity actually comes from not coming in first um you know like like a lot of the total money if you're 150 maxing like over a long term you're gonna actually quote unquote make more money from like get more return from like the non-first prizes than the the first prizes and so um you know, if you're just basically punting that off, and I'm I'm not saying that that anybody is, but I, I think that's that's in some sometimes overlooked part of it is that it's not it's not really like first or bus, right? Over the long term, because um, that is a big, you know, sometimes the way I think about it, and not perfect, but you know, the 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 wins you have pays for all your losses, and then what's left over is like what you've min cashed. Um, mm -hmm over the time period. So it, but, it's but all it's also really... a matter of survival. I mean, most, and a lot of people don't realize that you put in 2250 when I won 50 max to $15 or whatever in MMA, a lot, the average outcome is I put in 2250 and I get back 1500. I get back 1400, a bad day. I'll get back 600, but it's, I'm not losing the whole, I, I'm not losing. I'm cause I'm not locking in fighters. I'm, I'm playing a more diversified set of lineups. And what you're saying is that a, a lot of the, a lot of return you're seeing is like, is getting that 
equity back. And if you had an infinite bankroll, maybe you'd side on the, I don't care about losing it all as long as I win first and just prioritize that. But if you don't have an infinite bankroll, like it's the, I mean, maybe the risk of ruin is even too high for those strategies. You, You need to have a very, very big bankroll in order to survive that. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly right. Is is and it sort of goes back to the the point of of the survivorship bias. I think it's really hard and would be um, pretty unlikely for, um, you know, if you don't have some sort of success early, it's it's really hard for you to to lose for say six months and keep playing right in these contests um, for most people. And so, you know, I think probably the majority of people start out and might have a little bit of success or, um, you know, quote unquote, get lucky and, and hit a tournament and that affords them the time to really learn and get better. Um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of, a lot of similar, uh, people to the people who are playing professionally today who just didn't win for the first six months or whatever and, and just quit. So, and, and what winning in early allows you to do is, um, you know, most people early on are probably losing players, but winning early allows you to to get better and and have that bankroll probably to make mistakes, but eventually get to a point where you're you're a winning player. Um, so it's it's so dependent your success in DFS because it's so variant is so dependent on like when you win. Um, it makes a huge difference if you win early versus you know um, you know like sequence of returns. Like say you would have won if you would have kept playing two years from now or whatever. Um, it's just it's a it's a wildly wildly variant game um, because of the the nature of how top heavy the the payouts are. It's also the type of thing that I think back on how much more money could I have won had I been more like people you you I think more in those terms like you described of like I'm that's how I'm a nit I'm not a nit in my play style I'm a nit in my bankroll management but it comes down to maybe. Maybe there was way more of an edge back in 2016, 2017 that I shouldn't have been as conservative. And if I wasn't and I upped my risk of ruin, if I upped it, maybe I'd be sitting here with, you know, and playing $10,000 head to head. Maybe I'd have a $10 million bankroll had I done that, but I chose not to. And I chose to like, I'll be, I'll be Joey Kanish. I'll be whatever. And like, or it could have been that I, I could have done that and then been broke. And then you would have, no one, this podcast wouldn't even exist. You would have never even heard of me. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about this uh, betting or DFS is that um, you should probably be pretty confident you you have an edge first before you, you do it. But then once you do, um, I think I disagree with you on your, your nittiness. Um, I think uh, most people probably underdefine their bankroll, I, I think, um, because most people have jobs and, and can re-up that. You, you are different, I, I know. Um, but, but most people probably um, define their bankroll as, as probably too small. Um, and if you have an edge, at least I'm of the opinion, um, to, to jam it while you do, um, because most people, uh, their bankroll is replenishable. So you're really not well, that's over Well, that's at the low levels. Se. That's at low, but I agree with that at the low. I agree, like when people say they have a thousand dollar bankroll. I said if you're if you have enough disposable income to play a thousand dollars in DFS, you don't have a thousand dollar bankroll. You have a much bigger bankroll than that. But I disagree with you to point, and maybe it's just a personality thing. 
is that I'm never confident in my edge. I think it's not, def- it's not it's, to me, it's not like, it's not as more clear defined as poker that the edge could be different on different days, could be different sports, could be different everything, could be, I mean, how do, how do you, how do you, like people use Kelly and like how is how could you use Kelly for DFS? How do you define what what my edge is on today in a sport? I have no idea. It's it's the constant state of the sample sizes of DFS are small enough. People don't realize how small they are. That am I good or have I just gotten lucky for six years? Now, the, obviously, as the time goes by, I'm more and more confident, but like. How confident can you ever be at a specific period about this is how much you should be playing? And you mentioned the survivorship bias of a lot of people that are around now are there were five times as many. It's just that we're the we're the ones that are let or late the ones that have that are playing high high stakes are the ones that are left that that did that one early five eight years ago or something like that. So like, do I have an edge now? Do I not have an I? So that's where my nittiness comes from of like, I'd, r- I'd rather I overdefine my bankroll and I underdefine my edge. And I go, I think to me, it's instead of solving a Kelly formula, which is like maximizing for ROI, I'm maximizing for, I, I'm maximizing for a nut, right? I'm at like, what, what, instead of what can, how can I play to be, to get 50 to $75,000 in a calendar year and then back and then back in after that, that it may not be the highest ROI. It may not even be the lowest risk of ruin, but it's something in the middle where it's like your, your optimal chance of getting that profiting that amount involves you doing X. And I'm trying to do, I'm trying to come close to that X while a lot of people are doing the opposite. They're going, how do I maximize for the most amount of money, the most amount of ROI, or the least amount of risk of ruin and not setting like a, well, yeah, I, it's possible I could have, could have last year made $1.2 million. If I, if I really had that edge, quote unquote, but I'm not solving for 1.2 million, I'm solving for 50 to 75,000. So like, I, I know you're, 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 as an actuary, you disagree with my assessment because I'm way, way to being too, way too risk averse. Yeah, I, 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 so I actually don't disagree with you that much here. I mean, if if that is you know like your goal to make that amount of money, I I respect that, and I I honestly, I I think I I understand like you know. Some pe- like betting a lot of money is is not necessarily comforting and can have a impact on people's uh, quality of life. And so, um, you know, if if being out as, like a certain amount of money is going to make someone uncomfortable, like whether or not they have the bankroll to, like whether I think they should be uncomfortable with that or not, doesn't really matter, right? So to me, I don't necessarily have a an issue with it. The, the only thing I would say is that if your if your goal is is to make, um, you know, fifty to seventy thousand a year. You're you're probably more like like even more likely to do that. Um, like, t- I know I, this is going to sound obvious, but like taking on more risk, you're more likely to hit it, right? Like, um, because the more 
you play and the more sort of runs through you get, the closer you're going to get to right. approximating your true edge. And so when, when you play, for example, if you're not playing 150 lineups or whatever, you're, you're basically actually increasing your variance. You're not, you're not decreasing it. So like the more you play, actually you decrease. Right, but, uh, the more the, you play in terms of slates, not money, right. but in terms but of slates. All, you, but that's all, all dependent on your edge. So like right. if, you knew, if you knew you had an X percent edge plus whatever, You'd want to play more lineups because that would lower your variance. But if you didn't, couldn't, if that the impact of the number of lineups you play is exponential based on the edge that you have. So let's say, because we always talk about, if I had 150 lineups, I could have win everything. It's like, yeah, if you're a bad player, you're just going to lose faster, right? So that's the point that I'm making of like, if you're not, if you can't clearly define your edge, if you're if you're more prone to underestimating your edge, shouldn't you be more prone to playing less lineups? Because if you're not, if you don't have an edge, all you're doing is going broke quicker by playing more lineups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, equal, and, what I'm saying is that there's no correct answer, but I think there's a there's a lot there's an equilibrium. So like I try to play that like if I'm not sure I have an, I necessarily have an edge in MLB or I can't define it. Maybe instead of playing 150, I play 80, right? So if I if I do have an edge, at least I'm playing enough lineups to that to you know to realize it. But if I'm wrong, at least I'm going broke twice as slowly as playing 150. Like it's like that middle ground. And if you're not even sure even more, maybe then you should be playing 40 lineups. Like I think there's no there's not a black and white answer to this. No, I mean, obviously, quantifying your edge in, in DFS is uh, near impossible. Uh, you know, it would be easy. W- one thing you could do is you can you can sort of use past results to simulate future potential outcomes. I mean, one thing you you could do um, is, is like a bankroll sim where you take you take all your returns on various days in sports and just randomly sample that with a starting bankroll and see where you end up. Now, obviously, yeah, yeah, you like, go broke. You typically go broke like thirty percent of the time. <laughs> right. Well, you could see what. Yeah, you could see what your your the bankroll. You, you like, like what is that worst twenty five percent of outcomes? What's the worst ten percent of outcomes? Um, you know what? What's even interesting to do is just rearrange your like rearrange your own results and see like if I had started out you know stuck hundred k, would I still like would I be here now? Like if I going to the point of rearranging when you win and stuff. Um, but that could be somewhat helpful um, to see like what potential s- swings you would have, like simulate that out like that. Um, obviously, the point that is implicitly in there is, is um, you know, that your past returns are going to be indicative of your future. And there's, there's no guarantee of that. But, you know, I, I would, you know, at least that's how I would think about it is I would sort of see what swings am I comfortable with? Like if I have a bottom 10% outcome, how much am I going to lose? Am I okay with that? Um, and and basically uh, wager according to that. Uh, I don't know exactly what numbers I would use for that necessarily. Like, am I okay? Um, what percent of outcome at what percent of loss am I okay with? Um, that's, that's a personal decision, I think. But, um, you know, I think that would at least give you sort of like an insight into like, here's how much I can reasonably expect to, to lose. And like, would I be okay with that? Um, that's at least how I would think about it. That's the, it's the okay part. 
I'm not. I'm not okay with losing. I you gotta lose I to win. I, 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 I was used to the poker swings. The DFS swings are way are, to me. The DFS swings are way worse than poker. Well, I didn't play poker, but the I don't think there's a game close to the variance of of DFS that has ever been played for substantial money. I, I'm guessing. I mean, it's it's when you think about it, like if you thought of a, a DFS contest as just a, a bet, um, you know, like the 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 payout to the uh, wager, so like the odds you would get for the first place prize is so ludicrous. I mean, we talked about this, like that's why people are interested in it, but it's so ludicrous. I mean, you can look at simulations of betting results if you're just betting like 10 to one dogs, which is less of a, you know, sort of average payout than DFS um, from where your money comes from. And the, the swings are going to be incredible um, if you were just betting like 10 to one. Um, so in DFS, it's just going to be absolutely absurd. And so, I mean, right, a lot of these contests is, are like 10,000 to one. Exactly. I mean, I mean, this is why I don't like, I, I never really had interest in being someone who, who MMEs and it, you know, I probably can't even, I'm probably not, I couldn't even be profitable at them, but even if I, even if I could, um, uh, or I should say MMEs for like, you know, NFL, MLB, NBA, these, these main contests, even if I could, um, I, I don't think I have the personality to, to deal with the swings. Like I, it would impact my life in a way that's, uh, that wouldn't be worth whatever money I would make. Now, if I was one of the you know best players in the world, maybe that money would be worth it. But honestly, like I, it's just not, it's, it's not like a lifestyle, uh, decision for me. So I, I, really respect the people who, who are out there and then being every day. I think it's, you know, I play against more smaller entry type stuff um, where the variance is lower and even losing, you know, obviously you're going to even lose there, you know, couple, several days, week in a row or whatever. And, and that's hard. I can't, I can't even imagine wanting to get up and keep working when you're, you're losing for months on end. So I mean, I think more people would honestly enjoy DFS playing it in in not those MMEs, but I know the the top prize is is super attractive, but it's just a really hard um, pill to swallow and lifestyle, and hard to keep playing well. I would think too, because um, I, I would just guess you're you're continually tweaking and changing your process, and hard to actually like gauge if what you're doing is is good or not. So. Yeah, I don't envy those people, and and that's that's why I don't play that stuff. Well, I don't play I, I don't play for the same reason. I obviously have a bit more risk. Uh, you know, I'm a nit, but I'm still play for more money and more volume and take on more risk than you do. But I'm still cognizant of like, like one thing I remember you tweeted. It's like I, 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 I don't, I don't ever proclaim myself to be anything but that. Like, like, because people will come to people and say. I think you're wrong on this thing or whatever. It's like, well, based on what I'm based on what I'm looking to do, it's like, yes, you're right. That would be a more profitable strategy, but I'm not willing to right? like, or that or right. people will say, uh, uh, Oh, uh, I mean, constantly you'll hear one of two things. You'll either hear, uh, have you ever won the Millie maker? I'll go. No, it's like, well, you can't be a good player. Then it's like, well, that person obviously does not understand variance whatsoever. Uh, and I say, I don't even play the Millie Maker. And they go, why don't you play the Millie Maker? Because 
someone that doesn't understand variance. Okay, so like I'm, I'm not looking to make a million dollars. I don't need. I don't. That's a negative EV contest until you win it. Uh, and then, but then you hear the other hand. Uh, why aren't you playing the 888, the 77, like whatever you know, uh, say, you know the t- high stakes three max or 15 max or something. It's like why don't you play three entries into the eight? It's like those are also the best players in the world. It's like. Like I need somewhere in between. Uh, where where do I find the the best edge? It's like the large field contests, right? Which obviously the variance is ridiculous. Like you're, I'm just looking for edges around, and it's like, well, it would be so much. Why don't you just if you're a good player, shouldn't you be competitive in the seven 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 or something? I said my goal isn't to be competitive. My goal is to make fifty to seventy five thousand dollars a year. Like if you start from that, start from there, like you have some framework on how to play. And I think so many people that either try to play more seriously or as a side income, I'm not talking about even professionally or for an income or reasonable sum of their income is that there's no, like, I think it's so much easier to figure out how to play well. If you set a goal like that, that is realistic. So when I tell people with, you know, I tell people that, you know, they say, oh, they, they have a $5,000 bankroll. Because originally they say they have a $500 bankroll. I say, no, you don't. How much are you willing to lose this year? They go, $5,000. Okay, so that is your bankroll. I said, if you play 5%, if you play uh, 2 to 2% in GP and learn how to play or whatever like that, you could turn 5000 into probably 15000 by the end of the year. And but and said, and the only difference between you and me is that I'm six years ahead of you. That That's... That that's the only difference. If, if you learn all this, I'm not special or anything like that, but that's with having that type of goal. And there's, I'd say 95% of people that I talk to don't have any, they have a, I'm look. I, I have some disposable income and I'm looking like, I'd love to make more money doing this. And they're like, well, how do I, how do I win that? Like this year? And I go, well, you have to learn how to turn 500 into a thousand first. Then you have to learn to turn a thousand into two thousand. And then, once you start learning to do that, then it becomes easier and easier. But then you get to higher levels where you're dealing with people that know how to do that also. And now it's like, what are you, what are you comfortable with? And I think, I think it is a realistic, that, that, that this, uh, what I always try, try to not be like other people. I go, if you learn the concepts of DFS, you don't need a model. You don't need to simulate stuff, probably probably need to subscribe somewhere to get projections and ownership. Said simply that and doing content and learning just basic statistical concepts, game theory concepts, that the games even now in 2022 are beatable enough that whether you decide to play head-to-heads, large field contests, small field contests, different sports, showdown, tiers, whatever, there's enough of an edge that if you are truly serious about it, you could get to the point where you're making $50,000 a year without that much of a, oh my God, I lost $10,000 this week type of swings. That if people were in that realistic zone, like like DFS could actually be fun and profitable and not as stressful. And I think people just get outside of that zone way too much. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that's that's one of the things I respect about you is that, um, you know, like, I think a lot of people, and this has been talked about before, like, see these screenshots where 
100k or whatever and think oh this person's up over you know over 100k on the or year or whatever but, down. <laughs> right exactly yeah exactly and so um i i generally agree with your your premise here i, I think it's certainly possible still in this environment to to make um some money for most people playing dfs if they sort of start slowly and and um you know really i think that the, the biggest opportunity i see it in dfs is not even turning into what i would consider like a better player but just picking better types of contests and sports to play i mean i think you you said it earlier is that almost all your edge comes from when people make mistakes and um it's really beneficial if someone's making a mistake and you're in a it's way more valuable if someone's making a mistake and you're in a say head to head that if you're in a 20,000 person contest so um you know and that there's a continuum there so if you you're able to find sports where it's a bunch of casuals who just enter you know the small contest like that that's really uh really valuable um and honestly that so that's that's more of what i focus on i think i spend more time trying to find good games in, in different sports. And then we'll try and I, I don't, I don't basically build a model and then start playing the sport. I will like try and understand the lobby and what's going on before I would build a model and then, and then go from there because there are some sports where, you know, the only people in the lobby are, you know, for example, soccer, like I'm not going to build a soccer model. I think uh, highly uh, not that I know them, but I know the people the, that that are in those lobbies are very sharp, have been playing there for a very long time, and it doesn't seem like there's many casual people coming in. So that's like something I would avoid. But there's other sports that aren't necessarily like that. And, um, you know, some of the smaller contests, it's easier, three mans, four mans, 10 mans, it's easier to manage and just like actually spend your time understanding people's lineups and what they're going to do. Now, that's not nearly as fun, say, as... Uh, you know, building lineups and stuff. But reality, I, at least in my opinion, is that's where for people who are who are not trying to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, who want to make this a hobby or, um, you know, something where more reasonable, um, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars a year, uh, somewhere in there, I think it's somewhat attainable to do just sort of finding good games and getting getting good at them. And and building from there. So I, I totally agree with you and and wish more uh, sites, touts, whatever would would talk about like realistic um, ROIs, realistic how much money you can actually make, like uh, to to sell it tell to sell it to someone who bets hundred dollars a night that they're gonna make you know hundred thousand dollars and share screenshots and something. I think it's pretty disingenuous. So like I just you know, it's pretty easy when you do how much you're betting times what like a realistic ROI is, it's how much you could actually make. But that's obviously not very um, sexy to most people. So I right. think uh, it's hard, hard to right. sell no, no subs double that up way. screenshots. Imagine I did the double up <laughs> screenshots. Look, I I turned 400 into 800. You should have you should have posted your screenshot of of when you had whatever four people and three you duped or whatever. That that should have been the <laughs> screenshot. <laughs> We still have Didn't another tiebreaker. We still have another tiebreaker. Oh my gosh! Me and Mock Love tied gonna... again for second place in a in a two man and a four man. So now we have to play a baseball slate. And you know what the worst part about that is? I know exactly what it. lineup he's going to play. I mean, like that's it's it's uh, the the DraftKings person. I I don't know what's going to happen because I'm not I'm I know what lineup he's going to play tomorrow night. It's a fi- it's going to be a 15 game MLB slate. 
And this dude from DraftKings who's setting up this third tiebreaker is going, okay, play an MLB 15 game slate. Whoever wins this slate gets the last round two ticket. And then it's going to be a 15 game slate. And we're both going to have the same exact lineup. And the guy's going to go, what, what the fuck's going on? Like, and then go, oh, we'll set it up for Wednesday. Well, tomorrow then will be contest and we'll have the same lineup again. I'll go, tell me what's going to happen when the MMS slate is coming up on Saturday and you've already run 17 tiebreakers that we've, we've, we've already duplicated 17 times. Like they're going to have, what they're going to think is that we're both the same person. Right. You're going to get your account banned. Right. For, well, maybe that'd be good. If I could get McLovin's account banned because of that, that'll help a lot of people out. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, it seems like it's going to take more than that, but um, yeah, maybe he's, he's been slow rolling you and he's going to break out his like real projection source. Maybe he's, he's duping you. No, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like in MMA, we both played the, out of the four people. We both played the, the highest projected optimal with everything. I mean, two people didn't, right? One person got a, a, a ceiling Parisian score instead of playing Rachmanoff, and that outscored him. And one guy lost with Vieira, and he was out. And uh, yeah, so uh, sounds so, like it's going to come down to a coin flip. At this point, maybe. I mean, because there's it, it from a game theory perspective. Do I have anything to lose by not playing the the, the projected optimal. Uh, if you think it's, if you also agree it's the projected optimal, yeah. Right. I, the one thing, the one thing uh, you could do is sometimes, again going to simulation, sometimes a lineup that's projected higher doesn't actually win more than fifty percent of the time. So um, I don't know, I don't know because just based on distributions and stuff. Um, so I don't know if that's the case, but you know there there could be a a potential. Uh, I don't do MM, or MLB Sims, right. but um, probably not. Uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would play what you think is uh, what the I most think likely is not, what to I win. think is the optimal line, right? Yeah. which is going to be the same projected optimal that he's going to play. You, you're in that lineup sharing chat yes, together. It's the is collusion that, chat, okay. Of course, the collusion. That's right. <laughs> the collusion <Sorry>. chat. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, wow. I would just keep playing that and. It's going to come down to a coin flip, it sounds like. Right. But you're not in any chats or anything. No, honestly, um, this is like, I, I have basically no DFS friends. Um, so this is the first conversation my... you've ever had about DFS. Yeah, honestly, that's that's basically true. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I, I've, brief, I've briefly mentioned it to some of my friends, but none of them really play. Um, I don't really have, I have the Twitter, but I, I you know, I converse you, with you a couple people. You converse with people on Twitter. You're, you're, you're somewhat social. Yeah, yeah, I have a, a couple, but I certainly don't like you know talk daily about strategy or results. And yeah, this is the first conversation I've really had with with anybody DFS wise. So okay, are we appreciate you now? having me on? We, can we consider ourselves friends? I I think so. What about three hours later? I think yeah. I think we can. I'm gonna call. I'm, are you gonna be called the man without a face? That is. Uh, I could see your I, face, but no one else can. Well, I'm sorry you had to see this for the no, entire day. I don't, I don't At least know why? I don't know why the man. That's the title of the episode: "The Man Without a Face." Wow, okay. it's going to make it sound really mysterious, right? It, 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 and it doesn't matter. No one, no one could search for you or anything like that because we're not. We're using your middle name, and there's no photo. The man of mystery, the actuary that uh, you know, it's a actuary by day and some superhero by night or something. The man without a face. Bad MMA Sims by night. 
Right. So a uh, sports underscore underscore P-R-O-J. Did someone just, did someone already had the first underscore and you had to get the second one? I would have to think, yes, I, I don't. Uh, clearly, my SEO is pretty bad. But um, yeah, I, I would have to think think that was the case. I don't know why I would have done two underscores. Right, because it looks like, in the beginning, I thought it's like, oh, sports underscore projections. Like, nope, Scott sports underscore underscore proj. And sports-projections.com, if you, uh, if people, if you want to check your dupes and take, especially the showdown contest, and uh, you don't have an easy way of doing that, you know, Pay eight bucks. Originally, it was free, but I'm assuming yeah, you put a little paywall in it for two reasons. One, make a little money. And two, a lot of people are using it. Yeah, I think it's, it's really not about the money. I, I don't make nearly enough money that it would you know, ever probably make it worth it. Honestly, for me, it was about um, making me care about it a little bit more and maintain it and make it a little bit better. Um, you know, If I have actual people who are paying for it, uh, I'll service it a little bit better. Um, I think why I made it paywalled when I incorporated like the actual inclusion of salary and information like that, which um, needs to sort of pool daily from DraftKings. Um, so that's one reason. And the other reason is I just like to learn new skills and stuff. So my website is not the fanciest, but trying to figure out how, how to work that all. Okay. figure it can't help hurt me in the long run. Right. Well, you, you got eight bucks from me. I can uh, retire happy now. Right. Well, that's a, maybe the only money you'll ever make from me in DFS. I've, I probably doesn't pay for the other the losses. It's <laughs> well, I don't know what nothing. I don't know. I don't even know what you're playing. You're not playing the soccer lobby, so I pretty much don't have a shot. I play MMA. You've taken some money out of. Well, you. I don't know if you've. I've only been playing for like a month or two, so I don't know if you've taken any money out since then from MMA. Well, I but, mean, it, but it, that's equity. I mean, we're not playing like head to head or anything. No, no, right? No, yeah, I just mean out of the 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 pool generally. Right. No, I don't. I don't know if we've ever played. Head to head, probably not. Right. I think we play very different sports. Uh, okay. So sports-projections.com, sports underscore underscore project, P-R-O-J. If you're here on YouTube, you've been watching just me as a floating head and some other person and just an invisible person talking. But the whole point, this is that this is a podcast. This is audio form. I just throw it up on YouTube because people apparently like searching for stuff and watching. I don't know why you'd watch two heads talking for three hours, but you are. Give it a thumbs up if you're here. And uh, and as always, the theory of daily fantasy sports. 15-hour audio DFS masterclass. You can pick up at theoryofdfs.com.